Do you ever want a juicy steak or some type of favorite meal that you have? Many times you hear that in synagogue, people are craving the food. They're very excited about it. But in this week's Parashat Be'alotecha, a few people that wanted more than what they had and weren't really happy with the manna got punished with a death penalty. Why? And what does Asafsuf have anything to do with it? These are questions you're going to want to know the answer to because you want to apply it to your life. After that, there are many other questions that the crowd asks. Different questions, basic questions, big questions, deep questions. What should a person do if they uh, made a mistake and they stole something? What should a person do if they got married but they don't really know how to be a good husband or a good wife? What's the difference between Jewish marriage versus non-Jewish marriage? In fact, how can you learn how to be the best you that you can possibly be? These are some of the questions, but there are also questions like, why do we wear tzitzit? And is there any truth to Islam since they technically have Allah, which also means God? This and much more is discussed in tonight's lecture. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it because it'll have a lot of information that's useful for everyday life. Enjoy it, share it, support, and be holy. everybody. We're back here on our Wednesday night. Stumped the rabbi. We're after some divrei Torah. Bezot Hashem, you guys will ask some questions from TikTok, from Facebook, from uh, other places. Bezot Hashem and Hakadosh Baruch Hu. Bezot Hashem will give us the answers. Uh, tonight's show is for the refuah shlema for uh, Rabbanit uh, Sarah Bat Anat, Rabbi Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Levana Bat Sarah, Avi Mori, David Ben Esria, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora. And all of Am Israel and all the righteous Noahides that continue to watch us, continue to support the organization and help us with all of the extraordinary things the organization is doing. Reminder for everybody to go to uh, our website and donate uh, as much as you can because uh, it certainly is needed and certainly helps. Uh, you can go to the website bezratashem.org. That's B E E Z R A T H A S H E M.org or bhtorah.org, bhtorah.org. And of course, anyone can go to the Q store, which we've uh, mentioned to you guys quite a few times, and get yourself one of these uh, movie cards, uh, or a bunch of them actually, uh, that uh, you can distribute in your community, or just simply put it in the uh, Jewish supermarket, or synagogues, and of course, some of the USBs, and the car magnets, and a lot of other good stuff that we give out for free. Baruch Hashem. <coughs> so... Uh, with that being said, I highly recommend people to actually sign up to the uh, newsletter on our uh, website. Also, today we published an extraordinary real-life story that we got from one of our uh, students that uh, was courageous enough to tell her story uh, about how the, uh, the lectures not only saved her marriage, but actually also saved her eternity. Uh, it's a highly recommended story. I told you briefly about it, but... It's better to always get it from, uh, literally, from the person's mouth, and this was published in the newsletter tonight. Uh, for anyone uh, that's not uh, a part of the newsletter, you didn't get the email, so I recommend you get the uh, sign-up for next time. <clears throat> but anyone that's interested in that story, I'm sure it'll be posted somewhere in the groups uh, in the next day or so. Anyway, we have uh, Parashat Baalotecha. We're going to get right to it because there's simply a lot of information 
that every parasha has. Every weekly parasha has an extraordinary amount of secrets, extraordinary amount of teachings that are applicable to our lives. Uh, but as I always tell you guys, and I've done for the last decade or so, anytime you have critical questions in your life, if you study the weekly parasha well enough, you will find your answers in that parasha. You will certainly find your answers. And many times people tell me that uh, they find their answers in our lectures. Literally, they have questions in their mind. They want to type them. They want to send them. But as I'm speaking, I'm already answering their questions, Baruch Hashem. This simply means that you have enough siyat dishmaya, enough divine assistance that HaKadosh Baruch Hu cares enough about what you want and what you're thinking and the answer you're looking for to give the speaker words to say. Baruch Hashem. So, with that being said, we have many lessons, but we're going to go over a few things that are not only interesting, but also are critical. Critical for our lives, critical for us to have good lives, critical for our journey to get to, uh, to uh, a place where uh, good is, uh, never ends. So at the beginning of the parasha, we learn about parashat Ba'alotecha, Vayidabera Adonai el Moshe Le'emor, Daber el Aaron, Ve'amarta elav, Ba'alotecha et anerot el mul pnei amenora, Ya'iru shivat anerot. The Torah starts off by Hashem's instructions where he speaks to Moshe and he says to him, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you kindle the lamps towards the face of the menorah, shall the seven lamps cast light. Here we see that the menorah is shaped in a certain fashion where the, uh, they're, they're pointing towards the leader. One of the things that we can learn from there, of course, as a, uh, again, as a uh, Musar from it, is that the leader is only as good as his followers. If the, uh, if the followers are going to uh, put light on him, give, him, give the, uh, the sages, give the rabbis, give the Talmud Chachamim support, then certainly the, uh, the, the leaders will do well. If they don't, then you could have some of the greatest rabbis of the generation simply be ignored. I know quite a few Talmidei Chachamim, uh, and uh, unfortunately, one of the biggest battles that they have uh, is the fact that their keilah, their communities, simply don't understand what they have. They simply don't understand what they have, how great this rabbi is, how smart he is, how much Torah uh, he learned, and how much he's dedicated his life to the world of Torah. And, and really, the biggest loss from this is the community itself, because if the community knows how valuable the rabbi is, then certainly they're going to take advantage of it, learn from them, support them, and do everything possible to bring more light to this, to their teachings. When a community doesn't respect uh, and honor their rabbis, then unfortunately only tragedy can follow. Either tragedy where you have an entire community full of ignoramuses, or you literally have a, uh, a tragedy that could lead to uh, out outright disasters like the one that uh, the Rishon Letzion, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef, uh, recently publicized a personal story, a personal story that he himself witnessed, he himself uh, was involved in, where he came to the Chalabi community uh, in the United States with several other rabbis. And uh, they were talking about how it's a, uh, the Torah is extremely important to support the Torah scholars, the Avrechim, like the ones that we have in our kolel in Israel, and of course there are many other kolels out there. Uh, and the Rishon Etzion was talking about how important it is for a community to support Torah, to support these Avrechim. And 
one of the people that attended simply spoke against it and saying, why do we need all these avrachim? Why do we need all these people to learn Torah? I mean, if they are geniuses like your father, meaning, then sure, no problem. Let them go learn and let them uh, learn. You know, we'll support them. But if it's just an average person, if it's just an average person, what do we need them learning for? Let them go uh, deliver pizza. Let them go and, uh, you know, sell shoes or something. Let him go make some money. What do we need him learning for? Now, such a statement is literally the definition of apikosut. Apikosut in, translates in English to heresy. This is literally the definition. When the Rambam and the Gemara clarifies what is an apikos, this is what an apikos is. This is one of the definitions. Someone that disrespects the Torah scholars and says, what do we need them for? So literally, it's like as if this guy's heresy came right out of the book and was put into his mouth, and it, the, the verse in Parashat Balak was fulfilled, Vayiftach Hashem et Piyaton, and Hashem opened the mouth of the donkey. Now you would think that a room full of Torah scholars, the Rishon Letzion, everyone is there, one of the rabbis would say something. None of the rabbis spoke until the Rishon Letzion roared at him and said what are you talking about how can you say such things we need the torah scholars whether they're big or small regardless these are the ones that give the community power these are the ones that give the community life these are the ones that protect us more than the iron dome more than money more than anything else out there and this chutzpan disagreed with the rishon Zion again in public all of the other rabbis were scared to say something. Why? He was the richest guy in town. Apparently one of the wealthiest guys in the uh, Syrian community. And Rishon uh, Zion says, let's uh, give them the kafschut that they were all waiting for their donation. So they were scared to speak against them. Of course, this is wrong. But needless to say, the Rishon Zion did not hold his breath and made sure that he rebuked this guy in public, but the guy did not accept it. Why we publicize this? What was publicized? The Rishon Letzion himself said it wasn't two weeks, week and a half later, where this extraordinarily wealthy heretic died in a tragic accident with his wife and his daughter. And Mitamishuna, strange death. Fulfilling what the Gemara says in the Yerushalmi, Akadosh Baruch Hu is willing to forsake his own honor, but not the honor of his scholars. And literally, this guy with all of the money and all of the power is in a place where literally there is no end to the suffering, even if he donated, even if he did a lot of good. Right now, he literally, as Rabbi Ephraim told me, he's literally in Shemaim begging, begging just for five more minutes to come back down to this planet so he could write a check for all of the money that he has to give it to those same Torah scholars he was insulting so they could save him out of the genome that he's in. And this was publicized by the Rishon Letzion recently. So now, Rabbi Karim, we understand that leadership is critical. But usually people think leadership in politics, leadership as in, you know, ancient times 
if we don't have the leadership in every single community if we don't have leaders that are empowered by their communities we don't have a menorah we don't have light furthermore we see that akadosh baruchu exemplifies this need for leadership when he gives the kohen gadol which the first kohen gadol for those who don't know the first kohen gadol was moshe rabenu moshe rabenu was the first kohen gadol for the first week after moshe rabenu it was aaron kohen after aaron kohen all of the other kohanim you know followed came from aaron kohen now interestingly this is something i looked at for years and never really got the hang of it never really got the hang of it unless until i saw the words with my own eyes and i said i i knew it i knew it but it's so good to see this imagination come to life believing what it says in the torah is simple once you dedicate and you simply commit to believing whether you understand or you don't understand it's simple but to see what you believed is unbelievable what am i talking about it says here that in chapter 8 verse number 11 that part of this kohen's job this kohen gadol it says it says Aaron shall wave the Levi'im as a waving service before Hashem from the children of Israel and they shall be to perform the service of Hashem what does it mean to wave what does it mean to wave now I always thought every one of these levim as part of them being accepted into the service of hashem they had to pass by the kohen gadol and the kohen gadol had to pick them up and like a lulav you know in love on sukkot you know you have to that's how you do it now this was in my imagination that's what enif means waving them waving them but then you're thinking about wait he's really picking up these grown men he's really picking up some of these people that are huge yes midrash rabba vayikra parashat emor vakohen agadol meechav the pasuk says the kohen who is exalted above his breath his brethren the midrash says it's written here that the Kohen Gadol is exalted above his brethren. What does it mean that he's exalted? That his Kohen is exalted, his Kohen Gadol. What does it mean? He is thus called because he is indeed exalted above his fellow Kohanim in five areas in wisdom, in strength, in comeliness, in wealth, and in age. These are the five areas that the Kohen Gadol is above all of the all of the others. Incomeliness is that he's more handsome than his brethren. Hashem beautifies him. Beautifies him a special beauty. In strength, it means he's more mighty than his fellow Kohanim. 
Where do we know that his strength is more than his fellow Kohanim? Where's the proof? As it says in our parasha, where the Kohen, where Aaron the Kohen Gadol is waving the Levites, which means that he waved 22,000 Levites in one day. How did he wave them? He would extend them forward and bring them back. He would raise them up in the air and lower them down. Hence, we see that he had great strength. And regarding the statement that the Kohen Gadol would be greater than his brethren in wealth, from there we see that he was not, uh, we thought that he was not independently wealthy, but rather there was the obligation of the community to make him wealthy, just like they did with Pinchas. Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aaron Kohen, when he became wealthy, the people came to him. He was originally not wealthy. He was working in the, uh, you know, hewning stones. And the Midrash says they saw that the Kohen Gadol is hewning stones. They came, they filled up the whole quarry full of gold coins, said, now you don't have to work anymore. Why? We are fulfilling the mitzvah of making you wealthy. You're the coin. But back to our point, we see the Midrash literally telling us that the Kohen Gadol got supernatural strength. Even if you go into the modern world and you go to one of these competitions of world's strongest man type of competitions, you see some of these people picking up 500 pounds, 600 pounds, 700 pounds. But yeah, that's only one time, two times, four times, 10 times. Have them pick up a 10 pound weight, 22,000 times, 10 pounds only, 22,000 times. Not a single one of them will be able to even do 200 times. Meaning that the Kohen Gado was given supernatural power over everyone else why because this rabotai was one of the ways that akadosh bahu is fulfilling his word imagine the kohen gadol what he could have done with that power but yet he chose to use that power to serve akadosh bahu later on we see that when akadosh bahu talks about the pesach sheni he again mentions this is for Am Yisrael, but also this is also for the convert. The convert that uh, shall convert among you, he shall make the Pesach offering before Hashem along with the rest of Israel, according to the decree of Pesach, reminding us that someone that converts to Judaism has to fulfill the Torah no different than everybody else. But why is this mentioned over and over again? Because Rabotai, one of the key lessons from this parasha is due to converts. Converts that did not understand what conversion to Judaism really is and what it means. Where instead of leaving their past behind and adapting into the Jewish world and completely accepting the culture, the language, the teachings, the understanding, they wanted to bring their old street knowledge, their old idol worship knowledge, their old rapping and their old fashion and their old uh, desire for materialism into the Jewish world. And this caused problems. It caused problems then and it caused problems today. Where do we see it? 
We see it in chapter 11 of this week's parasha. After Moshe Rabbeinu speaks to Yitro, his father-in-law, to convince him to stay and not go back to his uh, old town because he wanted to get everybody else to convert to Judaism. And Moshe Rabbeinu was scared that if Yitro, after seeing all the miracles, if he leaves, it's going to look like he doesn't accept the Torah. So he told him, it's better you stay with us. And after this, we begin a story where it talks about how the people started complaining. They started complaining. As it says, the people were seeking complaints that were evil in the ears of Hashem, and Hashem heard, and His wrath flared, and a fire burned against them, and it consumed the edge of the camp. And the people cried out to Moshe, and Moshe prayed to Hashem. And the fire sank. They complained. They complained, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't like complaints. Why doesn't he like complaints? Who are we going to complain to if we're not going to complain to Hashem? We're going to learn that from the second time they complained, right after. It says the the rabble that was among them cultivated a a craving and the children of Israel also wept once more saying who will feed us meat we remember the fish that we would eat in Egypt free of charge and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the nations and the onions and the garlic what is this they're pretending as if what they were in a restaurant in uh five-star restaurant in Egypt what are you talking about what restaurant what food who are this rabble the Sifre Zuta explains that this rabble is referring to the same as who was burned originally who was punished originally when it says that the uh, the fire burned people at the edge this was referring to the Erev Rav. This was the converts that did not really convert for the sake of Hashem. They rather they converted because they wanted to benefit. They wanted to get money. They wanted to become rich. They wanted to marry some girl that's Jewish already. They wanted to convince other people to follow them. So Hashem punished them, giving everybody a warning. Don't be like them. Instead of taking that as a warning... We fell for the trap where this rabble this rabble is rashi explains also is the people that converted from all the different nations and came with am israel where all these nations come from egypt did not only have jewish people as slaves egypt had many different types of people as slaves now when all of these other nations saw the miracles that hashem is making for the jewish people they said listen what are we going to stay behind here with the with these egyptians let's go with the jews they now have all the money they took it from the uh, all the money they took from the egyptians 
Let's go befriend them, take some of their money, convince them to go follow one of our gods. Let's try to pretend like we're their friends, pretend like we like them. And uh, we'll turn them all into, uh, into us. And even if we don't, at least we'll benefit, we'll make some money out of it. Moshe Rabbeinu thought that they were authentic and they actually wanted to go and accept the Torah because they were going into a dangerous place, they were going into the desert. He didn't realize that for the sake of money, these, uh, these uh, idol worshippers were willing to do anything. And they came and they became known as the Erev Rav. The Erev Rav wasn't just Egyptians that wanted to become, that pretended to want to be uh, Jews. It was also other nations that were also slaves. That's why they're called Erev Rav, but they're also called the uh, rabble in English. Or the Asafsuf. Asafsuf in, uh, in, in the Sfat HaKodesh. Asafsuf, meaning that they were, they were a, a lasof, means to gather. So Asafsuf is like the ones that were gathered from multiple different types of nations. Now these rabble made a request and then it says that Israel wept again. What does it mean they made a request? They started talking to the Jewish people saying, listen, what are we doing here in the desert? Why are we here? For this manna? What do we need this manna for? Look, I have to go to the manna. I have to walk two miles just to go get some manna. In Egypt, I only had to go two, three doors down to get some food. In Egypt, don't you remember one time the Egyptians gave us a melon before they killed that other guy? But anyway, forget about the killing. You know, they gave us some melons. And remember, they, they gave us a fish one time. And remember all those things? Here, look, I have to go wake up in the morning. Some of these rabbis, they have their uh, mana right next to them. I have to go travel two hours. Now, of course, the real reason why he has to travel two hours to go get his mana is because he's wicked. As the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says, the mana wasn't just a spiritual, uh, 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 a, wasn't just a food. It was literally a spiritual proof uh, machine where it told every single person where they stand, if they are wicked or they're righteous. If they're righteous, then the manna comes down right next door to the door, the entrance of the person's uh, house, his tent. If he's wicked, he has to go travel for it. The more wicked he is, the more he has to travel for it. Furthermore, the righteous people could just take the manna, it came to them ready. They just take it, they bite it, whatever flavor they want, is that's how it tastes. First bite, they want a uh, ice cream, that's how it tastes. Second bite, they want a uh, milkshake, that's how it tastes. Third bite, they want a fruit sandwich, no problem. Fourth bite, they want uh, some type of a uh, uh, cream cheese, okay too. After that, they want steak, also. Literally, every single bite can be a different taste. The other guys, the wicked guys, they had to not only go travel over the hill to go find their mana, but once they got it, they had to cook it, they had to bake it, they had to fix it in order for it to taste like they wanted to taste. And instead of doing tshuva, they complained, look, I have to go travel. So some of the other Jews said, you know what, it's true. You know, I don't have to travel as much as you, but I still have to travel. I'm not like the rabbis. I'm not like Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron and all these other uh, tzaddikim. 
I have to go down the street. It's not fair that I have to go down the street. It's not fair that I have to, uh, you know, heat it up a little bit. Because if I had a watermelon, I don't have to heat it up. If I had some fish, I don't have to do all that. Like they gave us in Egypt. So they started convincing them that the old way is better. Back when we used to go, you know, hang out on the streets and go to nightclubs, it used to be better. Back in the day when we used to go and have a different uh, girlfriend every day, it used to be better. He starts reminding them of all the different sins that they used to make. And one of the worst things that a person can do, worst things, is enjoy the sin after they've done the tshuva. Meaning, many times people don't realize that the most critical part of doing tshuva is not just stopping the sin. Not just saying, I'm sorry that you I've made the sin, Hashem. But actually regretting it. Many times you have people start keeping mitzvot. They start keeping Shabbat. They start keeping kosher. They start keeping, you know, some of the basics. They go to shul. But anytime they see some of their friends, anytime they see some of their colleagues and they have some time to reminisce, they reminisce about the past when they used to make sins. They used to go to nightclubs. They used to go to concert. They used to have all these different types of girlfriends and boyfriends. And they laugh about it. They say, oh yeah, the good old times. You don't realize what you just did. You just destroyed your tshuva. You just destroyed your tshuva to such an extent that you've put yourself in the same place that you were before you did tshuva. One of the amazing tshuva stories that was published in recent years was from a Tamit Chacham that uh, had to have an elective surgery and uh, he did the surgery and something happened during the surgery and uh, he died. They put him in the, uh, this is in Israel, they put him in a fridge for 19 hours. 19 hours he's in a fridge and uh, eventually his rabbi came to see the body. As soon as he saw the body, he started crying and he cried to Hashem. He said, Hashem, give me any hit you want, any damage you want, just give him back to me. Bring him back to life. And literally there was witnesses there on the spot the guy came back to life and from that day on he gives lectures and he brings his death certificate with him he goes see this is me i had this certificate 19 hours in the refrigerator what happened when i went up to the bed dean of shemaim they told me oh hold on a second that sadiq is crying for you we don't mess with him you got to go back okay but why, why did i die in the first place oh why did you die it's a good question I did tshuva. I stopped violating Shabbat. I started keeping kosher. I learned Torah. You're right. You started keeping Shabbat. You started keeping Torah. You started doing everything good. Except you did not do tshuva for the enjoyment of the sin. You violated Shabbat one time and you enjoyed violating Shabbat. For that, you deserve a death penalty. Separate death penalty from the violation itself. The violation is one death penalty. For each time you violated but here was a separate death penalty because now you did tshuva for you fixed that what you didn't fix 
is the fact that you enjoyed violating Shabbat. That's why you deserve a death penalty. So when a person reminisces about his old sins and how he enjoys them, he doesn't realize what he's doing. Needless to say, when people convert, people do tshuva, people are associate themselves with people from all walks of life that are not all necessarily religious and they enjoy sinful behavior even if it's not their sins even if it's not their behavior it's other people's behavior but they like to talk about it they like to laugh about it in worst case scenario they actually bring that garbage into the house they bring that garbage into the community and this is the problem we see now unfortunately bringing fruit where different people are bringing their pasts into the jewish communities thinking yeah yeah we're modernizing all of a sudden every second jewish guy is a rapper all of a sudden every second guy is uh having to do something to do with uh, with the uh world that's not exactly jewish all of a sudden everybody's very into the materialism the the, the high life the fifty thousand hundred thousand dollar vacations just for the small little holiday the obnoxious amount of money people spend on jewelry and on cars and houses and so much materialism which even though it's okay to enjoy life people are taking it to the point where they're competing against the non-jewish celebrities they see on television and many times you see these newly religious people new converts bring that with them and this influences i just somebody sent me a, a, a video just uh i don't know a few weeks ago of some guy i never heard of and he is apparently a rapper but he also owns some restaurants and he also owns some other things and he converted to judaism and now he's rapping to a whole big group of you know boys and young young boys and girls together which is obviously not not allowed and he's rapping to them and apparently he's well known enough that they're rapping back to him and i'm thinking to myself he's wearing tzitzit he's wearing a kippah he's presenting himself as if he is a righteous jew they're all religious kids and this is the behavior they're choosing to do and apparently this is okayed by some rabbi or some rabbanit that's allowed that's organizing this event this is a tragedy this is the type of tragedies that have been hurting our nation since this parasha mentioned here parashat ba'alotecha three thousand years ago we're not saying you're not allowed to have fun you could certainly have fun but there's a way to have fun that's kosher and there's a way to have fun that's not jewish and anyone that wants to bring their old traditions their old culture their old color their old things that that they were associated with should simply stay there this is why i always tell people we don't see color people that learn torah that dedicate their life to torah they don't care what color you are blue black green burgundy chinese indian hindu uh black guy it doesn't make a difference why do you know torah you don't know torah you follow torah you don't follow torah simple that's the end that's all we care about but what ends up happening is that people present their exterior as if they know their exterior as if they do but in reality he wants everybody to 
build them a special black Jew community, a special Indian community, a special, you know, a uh, Spanish community. Like, why? 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 Why is all this necessary? And that's unfortunately one of the problems that people are not really recognizing because we're being influenced by it. They're thinking, oh, look, this is a hip new guy. He came from the hood. He came from Bangladesh. He came from Gainom. He came from all types of places. And he's bringing his stuff to our community. Isn't that fun? No. If it was fun, Shlomo Melech would have brought it too. If it was good, we would have already had it. The reason we don't have rap mentioned in our Torah teachings is because it's not a Jewish behavior. The reason why we don't have these, these mixed gender parties as an okay recommended type of entertainment is because it's forbidden. And one of the things people don't understand is that when you're bringing this type of behavior to your community, you may not see the damage you're causing, but you are certainly causing damage. And one of the main examples is here. We see in Parjat Be'alotecha that this mentality of materialism, this mentality of we want more than what we have without working for it, came from these asafsuf, these rabble, these people that converted to Judaism but stayed with the non-Jewish mentality. And they caused the Jewish people to also desire the same thing complain about the same thing as it says in verse 6 now our souls became desirous what does it mean desirous the ramban says that now that they had these conversations about watermelon and foods and all these other things they don't really care about the mana anymore they're not even considering the mana anymore they forgot the benefits of the mana they're craving other stuff they're craving back in a the day they're craving the concerts they're craving the five-star restaurant they're craving all of these shrimps they're craving all the stuff that is not allowed they're craving the stuff that's not needed they're craving the stuff that distances you from God but they're craving it to the point says the Ramban that it creates a physical agitation because of the unfulfilled desires to such an extent they're craving it so much that they forgot to say thank you for what they already have they forgot to say thank you for what they already have and that's why the next verse says now in truth the manna was a beautiful round shape like coriander seed and its appearance was like the appearance of a crystal says onkelos the amana was a beautiful food it tasted like whatever you want if you were righteous literally you could have all of the greatest flavors in your mouth at the same time if you want and not only that it looked good everything good was simply reachable you didn't have to go look for food elsewhere you didn't have to go to back in the day you could enjoy judaism and, and enjoy life at the highest possible level without leaving home without leaving 
our culture without leaving our Torah. You don't need to go to the streets. You don't need to go to the projects. You don't need to go to the place where you used to be in order to have fun. You can have kosher fun. You can have kosher delicious life if you simply earn it by serving Hashem and getting yourself all the blessings in the world. The greatest joy is in your hands if you simply work for it. But what happens is people want things without working. They want things for free. They want things for free and they want them quickly. The on-demand gen- generation is not new. As Shlomo Amelich says, nothing new under the sun. Instead of doing tshuva and thereby getting the same level of mana as the righteous people like Moshe Rabbeinu, Yeshua Benu, and the God right to their door, they wanted other foods. Why? Because they know the other food is easier. I don't have to work hard for it. And they rejected tshuva. And as Rabbi Israel Misalan says in all Israel, Sefer all Israel, anytime Hashem gives a person a sign, he makes you sick. He makes you lose money. He gives you some type of problem. He sends you a message where a rabbi tells you you have to change. You read in the book, you have to change, you have to do tshuva, and you reject it. That moment, you signed yourself a decree, you're going to get punished. When? Soon. Soon. When a person rejects rebuke from a Torah, he signs himself, she signs herself. Problems are coming. And I has literally no end to the amount of times that I've seen this with my own eyes with people. They would reach out to me after they got, you know, some type of kindness from heaven where they saw one of my videos and it inspired them or at least it motivated them or they asked some questions. And they would send questions and I would give them the answers and I would tell them, listen, it's now that you know you need to change, you need to keep Shabbat, you need to keep modesty and so on and so forth. And unfortunately, it doesn't always work. Sometimes people say, listen, I like everything you're saying or it makes sense, but I'm not ready to change. And you don't even have to wish bad for anybody because you never do in this where I, where I sit, you, you pray for people, you feel bad for them. But what ends up happening is that you know that that minute that person says, I'm not doing it, they sign themselves. They sign themselves. The tragedy is coming. Surely later, somebody dies. Surely later, somebody gets sick. Surely later, they lose money. Surely later, a relationship blows up in their face. Surely later, something bad happens. Now you would say, oh, okay, so it's better for them not to know. That would be a foolish statement. Why? Hashem is making sure that you know. What do you think? It's a, it's a person making sure you know. Hashem is just giving you the message because He doesn't want you to leave this world before you have a chance to do tshuva because if you leave this world under the current condition, you're going to a place that doesn't that, that, that disaster doesn't end in. Genom. You go to Kafakela. You go to a place of tragedy after tragedy. 
So Hashem cares enough about you. He doesn't want you to leave this world before you do tshuva. So he sends you the different signs. He gives you problems so you can watch the video, you can contact the rabbi, you can get the answers and thereby change. After you got all of that and you still don't change, Hashem says, I have to pick up the volume a little bit. And he has patience. Sometimes it happens shortly later. Sometimes it happens six months later. Sometimes it happens a year later. But literally, sometimes it could be so tragic, like the story that the Rishon Etzion said, where the guy disrespected Torah scholars in public, and a week later, he, his wife, and his daughter all died in a tragic accident. So, here we see, it's no one needs to curse you, no one needs to, to, uh, to scare you. When a person rejects the truth, they're doing it to themselves. Somebody recently told me, listen, I tried rebuking my brother because he wasn't keeping Shabbat. And shortly later, he got sick. He has some type of tumor in his brain. He had to go to the hospital. I'm scared that I put an evil eye on him. I told him, you don't have to worry about an evil eye. Well, you don't have to worry about an evil eye. Another rabbi told me that I put an evil eye on him. I shouldn't have said it. I said, no, no, you don't understand. Him desecrating Shabbat, even one time without doing tshuva, is greater than any evil eye the whole world can put on him. If the whole world put evil eye on him, it wouldn't be as bad as him desecrating Shabbat one time. And the tragedy here is that he's been desecrating Shabbat his whole life. He doesn't keep kosher, he doesn't keep nothing. The fact that he was alive this long is a miracle. Don't think for a moment that your evil eye put anything on him. Everything that's happening to him is because he did it to himself. And if he wants to get out of this tragedy, he wants to get out of this, you know, life is on a line situation, he has to do tshuva. What if he doesn't? He'll die. Simple. Now, you say, well, you know, some people, they have this stuff and they get saved. Yes, they get saved, sure, but he'll die. Meaning that he could either die, literally, right away, or he could simply live a life of so much suffering, he would wish that he die. Until he either does tshuva, or Hashem simply says, time's up, and he officially dies. The only thing that could save him is him doing tshuva. And this is one of the things that not everybody gets a chance to do. Here we see that Am Yisrael took influence from the wrong source. Instead of getting influence from Moshe Rabbeinu, instead of getting influence from Yeshua Benun, instead of getting influence from the powerful Aaron Cohen, where did they get the influence from? Some former gangster rappers. Some... Uh, former uh, Ponzi schemers, some former thieves and crooks and criminals. That's who they got the influence from. They got all the influence from all of these people that came from different nations that wanted to be Jewish for a moment, but not for the right reasons. And unfortunately, Rabotai Karim, this is one of the roots of all problems. This is one of the roots of all problems. Because many times you don't know how bad it is until it's too late. People can pretend. 
They could pretend to be righteous, say, Rabbi, we love you, we support you, we do everything. And they look like righteous people. But as soon as they leave the rabbi, they go to nightclubs, they wear not modest clothes, they eat non-kosher food, they act in non-kosher ways, they steal in their business. Some people are so terrible, they even give high heels to their children and tank tops. Like literally, they dress their kids like little prostitutes, thinking this is a good thing. Or worse yet, they buy their kids video games. Why? To give them, oh, let's give them something to do. Give them something to do, give them a book. Give them a video about Torah. What video games? What is, he, what is the kid going to do with video games other than ruin his brain? And of course, I know to the average person this sounds extreme and fanatic. But when was the last time you saw somebody benefit from any of these video games and immodest clothes and immodest behavior and inappropriate places to, uh, to, to have fun in? No one benefits from it. Everybody regrets those times. All the tragedies happens in, all, in those places and in those acts. But yet people continue to do them. Now, the wrath of Hashem, it says, was very intense. Hashem punished them horrifically. Why was the punishment so horrific? Okay, so they missed the, uh, they missed the sign. They got influenced by a bunch of people that they shouldn't have been influenced in. Why is it, why is it that Hashem's punishment was so horrible that he started burning people? Then after that, when they wanted all this meat, he gave them this, these birds that they literally ate them for breakfast, lunch, and dinner to the point where he told them it's going to come out of your nose. You're going to hate it. And literally, those people, those same Erevrav that complained about the food, jumped after the food as soon as it came, this new food, this new dish. Look, they have like a soy version of bacon. Look, they have this this, uh, soy version of shrimp. Look, they have all of this non-kosher food, but really it's kosher. Look, we could like pretend like we're eating this. And they jumped after this food. And each and every single one of them died. That's what happened to Pasha. Why? Why was the wrath of God so horrible? Why was the wrath of God so horrific? I mean, you would think they killed people. You would think they raped people. They, they worshipped an idol. Why was the wrath of God so horrible? Where the verse says that each one of these people that ate from this slav, they all died. It looked like a blessing. So much of it came, literally, they didn't have to hunt anything. The birds came right to their hands. Here you go. Oh, another one, another one. And literally, by the time they were chewing, another swarm of birds came right to them. So they figured, wow, what a blessing. It ended up being a curse. Why? Why such a horrible curse? Where it says, and the Pasuk says, and Hashem inflicted a very great blow against the people. 
and a very vast killing against the people says onkelos meaning this place was a tragic a place of tragedy hence the reason why it was called after in verse 34 he named that place kivrota tava what's kivrota tava the graves of the requesters or the graves of gluttony where they all of these people had to be buried why 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 such a horrible horrible horrific punishment it wasn't idol worship it wasn't a uh, golden calf it wasn't murder okay so they listened to some rap songs okay so they started going to dance parties okay so they had they wanted to go to an 18 uh, star restaurant what's the big deal kill them Says the Gemara, says the Gemara, Oy la Rasha ve Oy le Shcheno. Betov la Rasha ve Tov le Shcheno. Huh? Actually, it's Oy la Rasha ve Oy le Shcheno. Tov la Tzadik ve Tov le Shcheno. The Gemara says, Woe to the wicked and woe to his neighbor. Good for the righteous and good for his neighbor. So then the question is, okay, we understand, woe to the wicked and woe to his neighbor. If he's wicked, his neighbor is obviously uh, under risk. Risk that he could steal from him, he could influence him to also be wicked. Good for the righteous and good for his neighbor. We understand that too. The righteous, it's good for him that he does good things. And it's good for his neighbor that uh, he could influence him to do good. But what if the righteous... His neighbor is wicked. So what do you say? Both? Answer is yes. Why? Why? Woe to the wicked and woe to his neighbor, even if his neighbor is righteous, because as long as as he is wicked, he could always influence the righteous to become wicked, just like the Erev Rav did. Good for the righteous and good for his neighbor, even if the neighbor is wicked. Why? Because so long as he's righteous, he can influence the wicked to become righteous. He can do kiruv. So from there we see, and this agrees with what the Lubavitcher Rebbe said years ago, similar to what I'm saying, that it's all based on who makes who the neighbor. Meaning, who is the one that's influencing who? The punishment wasn't because they wanted to eat other food. There's no problem of having a desire to eat a steak. There's no problem with a desire to marry a beautiful woman. There's no problem with desiring a bigger house. In fact, the Gemara says, when a person has nice things and a beautiful wife, it helps him learn Torah. There's no problem with those things. The problem is when a person makes those materialistic desires into their purpose of life. And gluttony becomes a standard. So much so that they forget all of the blessings that they already received. And thereby, the one who used to be righteous and receive blessings has now turned those blessings into a curse because he has become ungrateful for the blessings. You see, Rabotai Karim, the crime began when people went into the community with only self-interest where 
They wanted to see what can I get out of this community rather than what can I give. The same thing we're going to see in next week's Parashat Shlach. The spies went to the land, not looking for the better interest of Am Yisrael, but rather looking for the better interest of themselves. And this influenced people in such a negative way that they forgot their own blessings, they forgot the manna, they forgot what Hashem did for them and how He took them out of Egypt. They became ungrateful. They became ungrateful and literally disgusting in the eyes of God. About 700 years ago, a book by the name of Sharet Shuvah was written by one of the Gdolei Adol, Rabbeinu Yonah. In the third gate, section 231, he says as follows. He talks about different negative traits that a person has to fix. And he gets to the category of the person that's malcontent. Nirgan. What's this Nirgan? Amar Shlomo HaMelech. Alava Shalom. Shlomo HaMelech says in Mishlein, Proverbs chapter 18, verse 8, the words of the malcontents are as from those beaten, kemishlamim, and they descend into the pit of the stomach. What this means is that the malcontent is a person whose manner and nature is to complain and grumble and to always find criticism with his neighbor concerning his actions and his words even though his neighbor acts with him in a straightforward manner and in no way wrongs him. Nonetheless, he judges everything in a negative light without giving the other the benefit of the doubt and every error is turned into malicious intent. He makes himself as one oppressed and beaten as if he has been sorely sinned against by his neighbor when in truth he is the one who strikes and beats since his words descend into the pit of the stomach. For one who vents complaints against another, when the latter has not harmed him and has only treated him well, is a raging storm upon the heart, and he is like the one who shoots arrows which descend into the pit of the stomach. Here the Rabbeinu Yonah is telling us and elaborating on the words of King Solomon. A person that is a miserable person to the highest level is one that is unhappy and ungrateful no matter what you give him. So much so that even if you give him exactly what he wants, you give him a job, you give him a, a, you know, a bride, you give her a husband, you give him kids, you give them a house, you give them whatever it is that you give them. It's literally only a matter of time before they find something wrong with it, before they're not happy with it, before they want more. Why more? Because nothing is ever enough. But they don't do it in an ambitious way. This is not ambition. People mistake ambition with gluttony. Ambition is a desire to do better, continuously grow. Gluttony is a desire to acquire more, to have more, for the sake of more. 
and this person that is so focused on his own self-interest cares less about what he could offer others he looks at people as leads as potential customers as people he could take advantage of as all types of prey not as people that he can help he looks at a community as a target as a place where he could influence everyone as a place that he can get something from everyone not a place that he can give he wants to bring himself into them even if they're doing perfectly fine without him and he starts to get to a point where all of the blessings that he was given he finds something wrong with it the wife that he married say oh Baruch Hashem, what are you guys married for two three years yeah 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 it's good yeah two years he sounds unhappy why are you unhappy you okay no it's just that uh, you know since she had the kid she gained some weight huh what do you think she's not she's gonna have a kid have another human being in her body and not gain weight what do you think it's just gonna like should come out of our teeth or maybe it's gonna be like what one of the hairs what did you think is gonna happen no I don't know I thought that she's just gonna lose it well you didn't have a baby and you gained weight you look like you're gonna have a baby like the stupidity in people's minds is 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 literally it gets higher and higher as they get further and further from God and he complains about his wife that is not looking like a little stick that he met a few years ago not because she decided that she wants to uh eat mountains simple she had a kid but he's not happy with it forgets that what she does for him forgets how much she loves him forget how she sacrificed her life and forgets all of that and he starts looking at his secretary and he starts looking at the next door neighbor and he starts looking everywhere else thinking there's nothing wrong with it why it's not my fault she looks like that I gotta look at that one that's better I even had one guy tell me that he told his wife this nonsense I told him you're gonna get divorced you realize that he's like nah she's never gonna leave me three months later she left him I was surprised it took three months I was surprised it took three months he told her this nonsense he told her what he thought in this perverted mind thought three months later divorce yeah but what about the kids I'll take them too no but yeah but yeah but no good luck struggling for the rest of your life looking for that perfect wife that you're looking for that doesn't exist you turn the blessing into a curse you give him a job how much you want to get paid what do you want to do oh you know I want to work out of the house because I want to have some freedom to do some other things but I promise I'm gonna work and I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do that okay sure sure what do you want to do oh I want to do uh graphics or oh, I want to do marketing or oh, I want to do make phone calls or oh, I want to whatever you want to do okay no problem how much you want oh I'll take uh thousand bucks a week 500 bucks a week 5,000 whatever okay what do you want that's what you want okay I'll give it to you okay great six months later production is low what's going on you call the guy you call him what's going on what's happening how come uh how come you're not producing anymore you used to produce three four five customers a week now we're lucky if we get one what's going on everything's okay 
Nah, tell you the truth, boss. Uh, I'm not really happy. What? What do you mean not happy? I'm not your wife. What do you mean happy? What are you talking about happy? What happy? Nah, you know, listen, I just, uh, I don't know if I'm really getting paid what I deserve for all the skills that I have. And you know, like, I don't know if I'm really appreciated for, for all the things that I've done in my life. And what are you talking about? You get paid money every week or two weeks or month or whatever your arrangement is. Like you asked, I gave it to you. You work. What is this not happy mom? Well, I'm not your wife. We're not dating. This is not dinner. You're not supposed to give me a rating of whether you like my meal or not. I pay you. You do work. Simple. No, but I don't know if I'm appreciated. Wait, so you're telling me because you don't know if you're appreciated or you don't feel appreciated. Therefore, you allow yourself to steal and not work. That's, that's, that's how it makes sense to you. So you are assuming that because you're not appreciated in the same level you need to be, therefore it's okay to simply not work. Therefore it's okay to steal from the company. You realize you're going to have to go to Kafakela and then reincarnate as some type of creation in order to pay back what you stole. You realize that, right? No, why? I'm not appreciated. You don't like it? Leave. As long as you're getting paid to do a job, you have to do the job. If you don't like it, the door, I'm sure, is in multiple places in the same building. And if you work out of the house, you don't even need the door. Just send an email. Because it is certainly much more expensive to steal than you can imagine. Now, what ends up happening is People don't just become unhappy. Because if you gave them what they want, or at least what you thought they want, what they agreed upon, then it's at that time where you gave them what they want, they were happy with it because they got what they want. So how do they suddenly become unappreciated and unhappy? And all of a sudden they care about how you send them a text message with all caps and it sounded like you uh, were yelling at them in text. Or you didn't send them an email telling them happy birthday. And all of a sudden they really care about their birthday like Paro and Nebuchadnezzar. Why? The truth is simple, ungrateful. They started looking elsewhere. They started thinking elsewhere. They started looking at different shows and pictures of all types of stuff they want. They started imagining what it could be if they lived this illusion that they think could be a reality. And then they looked at their reality and it made them miserable. Why? Because the illusion of this success or this more that they have become uh, 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 desirous of has turned whatever blessing they have into a curse. Has turned their blessing into something that they don't even value. And they don't realize their lack of gratitude has turned them into a thief. Their lack of gratitude has turned them into a sinner. A sinner that HaKadosh Baruch Hu says is simply an abomination. The 
Shari Tshuva tells us here that this person who's malcontent, who's never happy, will start acting in such a fashion that they will criticize everything and everyone, even the ones that are doing good for him. And they'll turn every little mosquito into an elephant. What does it mean, turn every mosquito into an elephant? Every small little thing that happens, they're going to turn it into some type of conspiracy. Oh, they're out to get me. They're trying to hold me down. They don't want me to advance. They don't want me to succeed because they know what I can do. You can go to the bathroom. You can eat. You can sleep. Sometimes you can work. That's all you can do. But in your mind, you think that you're Superman. In your mind, you think that you are already this big, great success and the world doesn't appreciate you. In reality, you're deluded. Why? Success is acquired through hard work. Not something that you deserve. Not something that anyone owes you. But the person that doesn't feel that they need to say thank you for the little or the plenty that they have can turn every fly, every mosquito into an elephant and literally turn the world around him or her into enemies. Somebody called them just to say hello. Automatically, they think, what do they want? They need something? Maybe they're trying to find out what I'm doing, what I'm up to? Somebody ran into them in a store. They're following me? All of a sudden, they become like this Jason Bourne type of character. They feel like they need to be some FBI, you know, uh, fugitive. Everybody's against them. Everybody's off. Why? Why? It all starts with lack of gratitude. Lack of gratitude for what you have. And eventually culminates with a disastrous life that literally death is even better for. Because a person can get to a point where they will not be able to appreciate their wife, their kids, if it's a woman, their husband, the material that they have, the good times they've had, the good that they have available to them, and literally get to a point where everything turns bad. And then start lashing out this misery on everybody else they find wrong in everyone else they find everyone is not listening to them and then they're surprised that no one wants to marry them she's surprised that no one wants to marry her he's surprised that no girl even wants to look at him he thinks she hasn't found the right one he doesn't realize he killed the right one by simply talking to her the way that he talks she thinks she can't find the right one because all of the Shatchanim are not really careful with who they send her. She doesn't realize the right one died at birth because of her attitude. Because of her attitude, literally, HaKadosh Baruch Hu made him into a miscarriage. No one deserves that punishment of marrying such a person. People are surprised they have a miserable life. And they don't realize it starts with the person you see in the mirror. If you don't know how to say thank you to anyone that does good for you, how are you going to say thank you to your Creator? If you don't know how to say thank you to your Creator, 
How are you going to show anyone else that's doing good for you any type of gratitude? The reality is, Rabotai, when we want more than the existing blessings that we have, as if God owes us something, as if society owes us something, as if it's all about us and you need to give to us rather than what can I offer you, then we have missed the point of life. We have missed the happiness that was literally given to us on a silver platter to enjoy. And even the best meal will taste disgusting. Even the most beautiful woman will become ugly in his eyes. Even the most wonderful husband will become someone she doesn't even want to sit next to. Even the most wonderful children will become a bother. The big house will suddenly become small. The good job will become a burden. Money will never be enough. Food will never taste good. Life simply turns into misery. Not because it is misery, but because of a person's perspective and attitude about what their role is in life and how they are supposed to give themselves, offer themselves, thank whatever was given to them and be grateful for it, rather than simply think the whole world owes them something, especially the one that created them. Hopefully this gives each and every single one of us a new idea, a new thought, a new spark of something we all have to be more grateful for. Because if we don't know how to say thank you, everything else turns miserable. So I'm going to take a quick drink, and then you guys can start asking questions. Is Allah the same as the Jews' God of Avram? Uh, yes, according to the Rambam, it's written about 850 years ago in Yad Chazakah, that the uh, Muslims are uh, believing the same God as the Jewish people. They're, uh, in Hebrew, obviously, it's Elohim, or uh, you know, but uh, in our, or we call him Hashem, which literally means the name, because the name is too uh, too great for us to just simply say it uh, in conversation. We're only allowed to say the name in uh, prayer or when we read verses from the Torah. Uh, but uh, the name Allah is in essence the same thing. Uh, they uh, they uh, it's a name for for God. Uh, same thing like same the word uh, the word God. So uh, yes, it's the same God. The problem is not the uh, who the Muslims pray to. Uh, the problem is the uh, the way they interpret what the Creator actually said, uh, where it's uh, their Quran and other uh, types of teachings are unfortunately full of heretical teachings that are anti-Torah and uh, teach them to uh, hate, teach them things that are against what the Creator wants. For example. There is a uh, full permission for the Muslims to lie, uh, which is obviously the opposite of the nature of God, as God is truth. You know, He uh, He created uh, truth. Uh, he is truth. His signature is truth. Uh, so, for for a person to be allowed to do something that Hashem hates simply doesn't make uh, any sense whatsoever. Especially since He says Himself that He hates lies. Uh, so this is simply one of the examples. Many other things are obviously problematic with their teachings, 
whether it's their prophecies of the future of how they're going to kill more and more Jews and obviously more violence, uh, you know, find a Jew behind the, uh, the tree or behind the rock, all of these different famous uh, stories that uh, they say are prophecy or of the future, uh, these are all problematic to say the least. Um, and uh, most importantly is to understand that they, uh, you know, the, the Torah is the only document that Hashem gave us. Uh, the Quran or the New Testament are not part of the Torah. They're man-made documents, and obviously they have many, many errors uh, in them because they're man-made documents. Whereas the Torah, whether it's the written or the oral Torah, these are, uh, these are uh, this is the Torah. This is what Hashem gave us, uh, and this is a, uh, a person needs to understand that there is nothing else to replace it. There's nothing else to add to it. And anytime a person wants to uh, uh, follow uh, the, the, the righteous way, they have to take that into account that yes, although there are certainly certain, uh, some things that are good about every community and every culture and every, it doesn't mean that everything is good. And when, when, it, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, the actual uh, uh, divine teachings, God only gave us one thing. He only gave us the Torah. He didn't give us the Quran. He didn't give us the New Testament and all these other uh, man-made documents, uh, which naturally makes them problematic. Uh, either they are uh, fully idolatrous, or they agree with idolatry, or they're heretical and contradict the Torah, and, and on and on, which we've discussed in the past. So anyone that wants to live a life of truth has to understand that they don't necessarily need to be Jewish. If you're Jewish, then obviously you have to be Jewish. But if you're not Jewish, you don't have to be Jewish in order to be righteous. What you do have to do is you have to live a life in accordance to the Torah that's applicable to the non-Jew, which is the seven Noahide laws. I have a whole playlist on my YouTube channel that's uh, for Noahides, uh, and there's a bunch of different lectures that uh, discuss the Noahide laws and the different responsibilities uh, that Noahides have. Uh, and a Noahide is pretty much anyone that's not Jewish. Anyone that's not Jewish is considered a Noahide by default, even if they don't consider themselves a Noahide, even if they don't like the idea of Noahide, it doesn't make a difference. God is the only one that decides who and what. Uh, and so when a, uh, when a person wants to live a life of truth, then they have to stick to the truth, which is the Torah. Will I make it to heaven as a non-practicing Catholic? Uh, well, if you were a practicing Catholic, then the answer would be no, because you would be involved in idolatry. If you are a uh, uh, non-Jew and you follow the Noahide laws, then you do have a share in the world to come and you will be able to go to heaven. But if you simply practice nothing, uh, then you have a problem because you know there are certain things that you're responsible to do, meaning that if you are murdering people, even though you're not practicing Catholicism, it still violates the laws of God. If you're stealing, if you're committing adultery, if you're committing uh, other forms of idolatry, uh, you know these types of uh, or blasphemy, things like that are, uh, are obligations for all of mankind, not just for the Jewish people. So uh, a person has to know that the Noahide laws are applicable uh, to them, uh, you know, and they have to follow them if they want to go to heaven. Uh, let's see.
Can I convert to Judaism? Uh, yeah, anybody that wants to convert to Judaism can convert to Judaism if they um, go to a, uh, a Jewish community, meet a rabbi that, uh, that's willing to teach them. Uh, has to be an Orthodox rabbi, an Orthodox community, and uh, then eventually learn enough and make enough life changes to uh, go to a uh, Jewish court, it's called a Beddin, that would uh, do a conversion. If they're uh, male, then they would have to have a circumcision uh, before they convert, or as part of their conversion. If uh, they're female, then they don't have to uh, have any circumcision or anything, but they do have to be modest, and they have to keep the uh, laws of the Torah. What is the Talmud composed of? So at Mount Sinai, we got a, uh, as the verses say, we got three things. We got a, uh, the Ten Commandments. You know, we got the written Torah up to Parasha uh, Itro, uh, which is up to the Torah portion of Itro. And then the rest of the written Torah we got over the next 40 years that Am Yisrael was in the desert. And we also got the Oral Torah. The Oral Torah is the different details of the behind the scenes of the Torah, the, the meanings of everything. So for example, as I've explained in, in, in previous weeks, uh, the uh, Torah scroll, if you go to any synagogue and you open a Torah scroll, uh, it doesn't have vowels. Part of the oral Torah is the vowel system. Another thing is, the Torah itself, the written Torah, doesn't give an explanation of how to observe the commandments. For example, it says that you have to observe Shabbat, but it doesn't tell you how to observe Shabbat. Now, the reason why this is critical is because 12 times in the Torah, in the written Torah, it says that a Jew that does not observe the Shabbat laws will get a death penalty. Uh, and literally, get you know, at, at the time of Moses and at the time of the Sanhedrin, they would literally kill people that desecrated the Shabbat. In the Torah itself, there is an example of one person by the name of Slofchad uh, that violated uh, Shabbat and he got stoned. Uh, and then later on, at the uh, time of Yeshua Benun, another person got uh, killed. So this is a very serious uh, crime if you don't follow it. The Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, there in the first chapter, talks about how a, uh, there was a, um, a rabbinical decree that the Jews were not only not allowed to light fire and all of the uh, biblical decrees, but also there was a rabbinical decree that they were not allowed to ride a horse on Shabbat. And one person violated it and they killed him. So here we also see that there is a, uh, there's not just the uh, biblical decrees that are not written in the Torah, uh, but there's also rabbinical decrees. So where is all of this information if life is on the line? So that's where the oral Torah comes in. The Oral Torah gives us the details of all of these laws, all of the things that are allowed to do, all of the things that are not allowed to do uh, in, in regards to every law, not just Shabbat. Uh, when it comes to circumcision, the, the written Torah says to cut the Orla, 
Now the Orla does not have a definition in the written Torah. Only the oral Torah gives us a definition of what the Orla means, which is the foreskin. Because if it was up to human beings to define what the word Orla means, they would define it as something else. Maybe hair, fingernail, you know, something else. Certainly not the foreskin of the most sensitive part of the human body. So the written Torah is written in such a way where all of the information is in it, but it's not literal, meaning there are different ways to interpret the Torah. There's a system of how to extrapolate the different secrets from the Torah, the different lessons from the Torah, uh, and there are laws to it. The laws to how to interpret the Torah is the oral Torah. So we have, the oral Torah has multiple things. One, you have the details of the laws. Two, you also have the, uh, the laws of how to get those details and different secrets from the Torah. Another thing that they have is the behind the scenes stories that took place and events that took place that are not written literally in the Torah. Uh, whether it's like, for example, what I told you guys today, which the verse says that uh, Aaron, a Kohen, he would uh, wave the people. What does it mean to wave the people? Your average person would think, wave the people, maybe would wave his hands, uh, maybe uh, he'd uh, dance around them, but what it literally means as the oral Torah, which is part of it is called the Midrash, says that waving the people literally meant that he would actually lift them up in the air like we do with a lulav during Sukkot. He would lift them up in the air in different directions and he got superpower strength to do that with 22,000 people in one day. So there are many, many things in the oral Torah. The Talmud is the uh, uh, foundation of the oral Torah, but there are other parts to the oral Torah. Uh, aside from the Talmud, the Talmud is also called the Gemara. It's synonymous in so many words. Uh, there is, uh, and the Talmud has uh, the Gemara and the Mishnah. So these are in essence two things, two parts of the oral Torah, but they are combined into one. You also have the Zohar, uh, you have the Shulchan Aruch, you have the Midrashi, different Midrashim, uh, and you obviously have all of the different uh, poskim, the, the laws that were extrapolated from the, uh, the Talmud uh, and also from the teachings of the Torah itself that were extrapolated into uh, different uh, books like the Mishneh Torah of the Rambam uh, and eventually the Shulchan Aruch and then other modern-day uh, contemporary poskim. So the amount of books that the Jewish people have uh, as part of Judaism, not just uh, you know Jewish authors, but Judaism, is more significant than all of the other nations combined. There's an endless amount of books that we have with the documented history of everything that ever happened, documented uh, information for every uh, major thinker that we've ever had, all types of information. And there's literally different websites that have uh, a, uh, you know, 100, 200, 400,000 book collection that people, you know, uh, sign up for and they are able to uh, read and learn. And of course, there are libraries, there's... uh, places that have many, many books, but the point being is is that there's an endless amount of books in the Jewish world, and there are new ones continuing to uh, be written on a regular basis that are not bringing anything new. There's no new Torah. Everything is built on the past. It's just clarifying 
different things that already exist, uh, you know, in, in, in certain ways. So, uh, for example, everything that I taught you, I brought it from different books from that were written over the last couple of thousand years. Now, some of the things I read word for word, some of the things I explained in a, uh, in a easier to understand fashion. So nothing is new. It's simply the same thing that's always been there. Uh, and this is the oral Torah, of which the Talmud is part of. Why did you people slaughter hundreds of thousands of Greeks during the times of the Maccabees? Well, if you know who the Maccabees are and you know what uh, the story is of Hanukkah, then you would know that we were defending ourselves because the uh, the Greeks uh, took over, uh, came to the land of Israel uh, and, uh, and uh, took over and forced people to abandon the laws of the Torah and forced their idolatry into our world and forced us to, uh, to become like them. Now, what you probably don't know, because you certainly seem uneducated, uh, uh, just simply from the other comments that I see that you're making, is that you're probably thinking Greeks like the people that live in Greece today. That's who you're thinking is the Greeks that uh, the Maccabees defeated. Uh, that's which obviously a lot of people that are uneducated think that, but it's not those Greeks. The Greeks in Greece, we have no problem with. Uh, they have nothing to do with those Greeks. The Greeks that we fought against were the Assyrian Greeks, meaning they lived in Syria. They didn't live in, uh, in, in Greece. Uh, so there's two different types of Greeks. Uh, the uh, Alexander Mogdon, Alexander the Great, after he died, his nation was split into four. And one of the dominant ones was in, a, uh, in, in Syria. In Syria, there wasn't an actual Greece. And they're the ones that came and tortured the Jewish people uh, for many years before we fought back. What is the purpose of the strings on the sides of your pants? Well, there is a uh, verse in the Torah that uh, in, in multiple places that talks about our commandment that God tells us to wear this thing called tzitzit. This tzitzit, this is a shirt of its own. It's not part of my shirt. It's, it's a separate clothing itself. God says that this, each one of these tzitzit, you have to have, you have to put these strings. You call them strings. You have to put the, these strings in four corners. There's four corners to the clothing, and you have to put one in each corner. Now, if you're wearing a regular shirt that you buy in a supermarket, it doesn't have four corners, so you don't have to wear these strings. But a Jew that has a a garment that has four corners, uh, like the ones that I'm wearing, have to have these strings. Why does he have to have those strings? Because these strings are called a tzitzit, and it's a Torah commandment to, for a Jew to wear them uh, when they have a four corner because it reminds them of the laws that God gave us. It reminds them of how God favored us and saved us from Egypt, saved us from slavery, saved us from all types of uh, uh, enemies that we've had throughout all the generations. He gave us the gift of all gifts, which is the Torah, and we must not violate it by following the desires of our heart that are usually uh, a result of what we look at. Meaning, if you look at inappropriate places, you'll desire those inappropriate places. So anytime a person uh, has their tzitzit and they look at their tzitzit, in essence, it's supposed to remind them of what not to look at, what not to do, and what gifts and, and, and benefits God gave us, and all the miracles that He gave us. 
So this is the reason why we have the tzitzit. And it's actual verses in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, it's not something that the rabbis made up. This is one of the laws that God created. Spoke to no one like that. Oh, no <laughs> What obligation does a husband have to heed his wife? Uh, well, there is a uh, important uh, teachings about marriage and successful marriage. Unlike the nations where uh, people are uh, many times in it to gain something, in it to uh, lead in some way or another, and it uh, many times leads to divorce, especially in the West today, where you know it, and some uh, statistics have said that over 80% of marriages in uh, in the West, uh, in America, uh, lead to, you know are divorced within five years. So literally, the statistics are getting worse and worse. Whereas in the Jewish world, the religious Jewish world, you're not going to find many divorces, Baruch Hashem. And one of the reasons is because the Jewish marriage is not about what can I get, but rather what can I give. Okay, it's not about, it's not, a, you know, many people think, oh, it's give and take. I give and she gives, and therefore it's a give and take. She, I, I get, no. A Jewish relationship, if you wanted to follow uh, the, the laws of God, it's all about what you're offering, what you're giving, what you are sacrificing, regardless of what the other person is doing. Now, this does not mean that a person should allow themselves to be abused uh, and, uh, and, and marry somebody that doesn't appreciate them and somebody that abuses them. But if you are marrying somebody that has a similar ideology than you uh, and has, obviously, you're attracted to, to and this is somebody that is not going to do those things that everyone is afraid of. The problem is that many times people don't worry about the ideology. Rather, they only worry about the looks. They marry somebody because of their looks or they marry somebody because of their position in life, whether it be financial position or, or, or the likes. And uh, this is the reason why these two strangers end up getting divorced more times than not because the looks get old. Even the most attractive person in the world will eventually become regular every day to the, the person that looks at them more often. So unless there is an emotional connection there, uh, the looks will simply go away. Even if the person stays attractive, according to everybody else, the person that looks at them the most uh, is not going to find them attractive uh, unless there is an emotional uh, connection there. Now, the emotional connection is not based on physicality. Most people think that just because uh, they, uh, they have these little butterflies uh, when they first meet somebody, that means they love them. No, it just means you have lust. It means you have a certain uh, hormonal reaction to physical desires. It has nothing to do with love. Love is something you build over uh, a period of time where the two people 
literally connect their souls to each other as a result of different trials and tribulations that they overcome together different contributions and sacrifices they make for the sake of each other and literally built a united life uh both in a physical and a spiritual uh, uh, perspective and we have a whole series about jewish intimacy that i highly recommend for people to watch simply because you'll see how different it is uh, for uh, for what intimacy is supposed to be according to God versus what intimacy is unfortunately has become in the eyes of people. Most people think of intimacy as some type of movie with some candles and some chandelier in a fancy hotel room. In reality, that has nothing to do with intimacy. Intimacy has nothing to do with certain types of clothing or lack of thereof. Intimacy has nothing to do with a, uh, the, uh, the physical uh, uh, looks of one person over the other. Intimacy is, a, uh, is just a dream in people's minds because most people don't understand what, where intimacy even comes from the same way that they don't understand where love comes from. Love is a spiritual uh, 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 position, st- spiritual feeling that is not something you're going to acquire without sacrifice. It's not something that you're going to acquire if it depends on something. If you love somebody because of their looks, you love somebody because of their money, you love somebody because of any material thing, that love is not love and it simply that feeling that you think is love will not last. So a Jewish marriage, the key is to remove all of the falsehood that people think is true and try to acquire all of the truth together, build the truth together, build a life together, overcome obstacles together, unite in every aspect that you possibly can. And one of the most important parts of unity is to respect each other. Each person has to respect the other person. So the Rambam writes that a man is obligated to love his wife like he loves himself, but respect her even more than he respects himself. So you love your wife as much as you love yourself. That means that if, let's say, for example, you want to get yourself a new jacket, you have to get your wife a jacket. You want to get yourself a new watch, you have to get your wife a watch. If you only have uh, money just for one of them and your wife needs a jacket versus you need a jacket, you get your wife the jacket. Why? Because you love her more than you love your own your, yourself. You love it more than you love yourself. There's one uh, uh, piece of meat. If it's not enough for two people, you give it to her. Again, most of these things are simply uh, uh, examples that are not uh, reality in most people's lives, but you get the point. Love is not what I can get. Love is what I can give. Now, respect or honor uh, is something that a person has to give to their wife more than to themselves. And the reason why is because many times a person uh, would allow themselves to lose their cool and, and in so many words, put themselves in a disrespectful way put themselves in a disrespectful position where they they get angry and they make them you know they start screaming and yelling and you know, embarrassing themselves and, and saying dumb things uh, now a person is you know obviously he shouldn't do stuff like that but he should know that even if he allows himself to embarrass himself to make himself look foolish he is never allowed and he should never allow himself to do that to his wife why because her honor, her dignity is part of who she is, not just to herself, but to you. And the moment that there is no respect between a husband and a wife, 
that's where the relationship deteriorates into uh, you know a disaster that's where the love dies that's where the emotions disappear and that's where there's simply it becomes no different than you know one sheep and another sheep one horse and another horse uh, and it just becomes physical so it's a, a person needs to know that the respect is critical if a person disrespects his wife on a regular basis that's not a marriage that's at best roommates at best now on the other hand this is not a one-way street the Rambam also in, in the same place uh, talks about the obligation of the woman the woman is obligated to honor her husband like she honor would honor a king what is honoring a king what is how do you honor a king simple examples women God bless them they like to talk the Gemara says that 10 traits 10 levels of speaking were given to the world nine of them were given to women women like to speak they like to express themselves they like to talk about different things it doesn't necessarily need to make sense and it doesn't necessarily need to be important for them to talk about it and they like to talk and uh, you don't necessarily need to tell your wife to not talk it's perfectly fine as long as she talks about things that are appropriate now what she does need to know is that as much as she wants to talk when you're not there the moment the husband comes home that phone goes off don't ever put yourself in a situation where you're on the phone the husband came home and you're waving to him while you're still talking on the phone and you plan on continuing the conversation that is not a king if you want to be a queen you have to turn him into a king if you want her to treat you like a king you have to treat her like a queen so it's important for a woman to know that if she wants to be a queen she has to do all of the different things that a husband uh is uh is, is happy about whether it's cooking specific food or it's raising the kids in a certain appropriate way or it's looking a certain way to the best of her ability obviously or it's a uh, obviously paying him attention and really sometimes the uh the, the the most uh uh important thing that a wife can do is just simply be supportive when nobody else wants to be it's uh the husband is not necessarily going to be one that wants to talk as much as your sisters and your mother and your friends want to talk uh, many times they don't want to talk uh but the husband will need support at some point or another when he wants to do or thinks about doing or is doing something that is not succeeding and if you're going to argue with him every single time he's not doing something that he's succeeding in and you're always going to be like that uh, competitor with him that marriage is not going to work that marriage is not going to work if you're going to argue with your husband in public that marriage is not going to work if you're going to disagree with your husband in public that marriage is not going to work one of the things that a person needs to know in order to have a, uh, a pleasant home is never to disagree in public even if you disagree meaning your husband said something that uh, you disagree with let's say I don't know he says his opinion about a uh, I don't know a certain type of food or a certain type of place whatever he said is uh, is the opposite of yours and it's the opposite of the other people that are there and they ask you what do you think your answer is whatever my husband thinks that's a righteous wife not because you don't have a mind of your own but rather because in public you're always united now if you're not united in reality you don't express that and show that to public you do that behind the scenes behind the scenes when you get home honey by the way I think 
the what you what you said about that thing maybe we have to reconsider it oh why what happened what did you think oh and you tell them what you would think there's no problem with you expressing yourself the problem is if you express the opposite opinion in front of people why because that shows that you are really not together you're really not together the other thing is if you want to have a uh, long successful marriage and Baruch Hashem we've been married for almost 20 years and Baruch Hashem it's always been happy is it's critical for you to never tell people about your life never tell your friends about how great your wife cooks never tell your friends of how good looking she is certainly never tell your friends about the intimacy never tell your friends about anything that your wife does between you and her say she's a great woman the end never tell your girlfriends of how wonderful your husband is and how he bought you a present and how he treats you really good and how uh, he took you on vacation never tell your friends or anybody about that why because the moment you do that with your friends or whoever it is that moment the satan is going to make sure is a moment of weakness for your friend which means their husband their wife is not doing the same thing their wife is not cooking a meal for them at two o'clock in the morning their wife is not uh, looking her best and you're saying oh your wife looks like best her husband is not uh you know uh, giving her gifts he didn't just buy her a bracelet he didn't buy her a car her husband barely buys her a meal but you told her about your husband that's doing all that stuff guess what they start desiring your wife they start desiring your husband adultery doesn't happen with strangers adultery happens with people that are the closest why because somebody told them too much about their husband and the wife and the person started desiring that husband and wife the same concept when it comes to uh problems problems happen disagreements happen never discuss your problems with your friends or family that you're having with your wife or husband never only discuss them with somebody that can actually help you never for the sake of gossip never for the sake of simply conversation if you have a rabbi you have a, some type of uh consultant you have somebody that's a professional it's an expert that doesn't have a biased opinion discuss it with them everyone else according to them everything is great all the time why the minute you tell people about your problems if they like you automatically they'll hate your spouse and what happens is is that you don't tell your friends or family about how you made up and everything is good now so the next time they see that person they still hate them and they're going to give him an attitude and all of a sudden your husband will say listen i don't want to go to your mother's house anymore why honey why why she likes you no no she doesn't like me she always gives me that look she always gives me that look every time i come there i don't know why i didn't do anything to her you know why she's doing it because one time you told your mom that he yelled at you one time you told your mom that he said something inappropriate to you five years ago and she still hates him for it so you ruined the relationship keep your relationship between you and your husband these are different insights that the that's in our torah that's in our teachings that is what makes a jewish marriage a jewish marriage and of course again a jewish marriage is not a marriage without holiness between a man and his wife uh, and the, for that we have a whole series that discusses the intimate aspects of it and uh in so many words it's a world of difference between the inti Jewish intimacy and the world's intimacy. The actions themselves are the same. It's simply just the thought process, the preparation, the goal, 
the, the, the spiritual aspect of it is a world of difference. Uh, and anyone that wants to know the details can simply tune into that series and, and, and go from there. Um, do Jews believe in paying taxes? Uh, yeah, obviously. Well, first of all, there are details about taxes in a legal system in the Torah, and in fact, the entire court system came from the Torah, from Parashat Itro. The supreme court system that you have in the world today came from the Torah. Uh, taxes are also parts of, uh, taught about in the Torah. Uh, so as far as taxes are concerned, certainly Jewish people are not only uh, uh, paying taxes, but uh, the, uh, some of the most successful uh, accountants uh, are Jews. Uh, because in previous generations, ta- uh, accounting... Uh, was frowned upon. It was a profession that was frowned upon, similar to how sometimes people look at, you know, professions that have to do with garbage and 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 things of that nature. Uh, in in the old days, uh, accounting was a profession that was frowned upon, and therefore they gave those jobs to the Jewish people. So many times, Jews became a uh, whole family full of accountants. So not only did we uh, help people have a tax system. Uh, and, and, and tax codes and things of that nature, but also uh, we became successful and also contributed to the tax system. And uh, Hashem, the the amount of taxes that uh, we pay is uh, more more or less, uh, you know, it's it's some of the most significant amount of monies that the governments get is from Jewish people. Uh, so uh, I'm not really sure why would anybody think that Jews don't pay taxes. I know that in Israel there's some. Uh, hatred amongst the Jews against Jews, where the secular Jews hate the religious Jews because some uh, uh, delusional people think that the religious Jews don't pay taxes, but the reality is that there's no such thing. Uh, If you're going to buy food, you have to pay tax on it. Whether you're religious or you're not religious, you have to pay tax on it. You have a property, you have to pay tax on it. Whether you're religious or not is irrelevant. Uh, you, uh, you You have any type of income, you have to pay tax on it. Whether you're religious or not is irrelevant. Uh, you know, you want to uh, uh, do any type of business, you have to pay tax on it. Do any type of trade, pay tax on it. I just now, we uh, are, uh, we just spent, um, what was it? Uh, I think I sent something like uh, almost 35,000, more, more than 35, 36,000 shekels in taxes to uh, a shipment of books that I sent to Israel. And then I have another uh, Thirty-five or forty thousand or so uh, that I have to pay in taxes once the next shipment arrives in the next uh, couple of weeks. So uh, even though I don't live in Israel, I still pa- pay taxes to Israel for import export. Uh, we pay taxes to the United States. Uh, so <laughs> it's it's. Uh, I don't know why people think that religious people don't pay taxes, but it's just it's not something that makes sense. Religious people don't work, and that's why they don't pay taxes on. Okay, religious people don't work. All right. Um, there is a uh, organization named Hatsala. Hatsala is a free ambulance service. There's also a uh, organizations where they have 
uh, and this is an ambulance service that usually gets to the people faster than the ambulance in the city, whether it be New York or it be in Israel, wherever it is, and it's all free, but obviously costs millions. There are also organizations that donate, uh, people donate uh, kidneys. The company that organizes this, that performs the, uh, the, the, arranges the surgeries, is also. There are some of the most successful people in the world of technology are religious Jews. In fact, I actually once, uh, maybe 20, 25, 26 years ago, I met a uh, religious guy, Hasidish guy, and uh, as part of the conversation, uh, he told me that he was one of the original, I believe it was original 50 or 40 employees of Microsoft that developed the operating system, Microsoft. And he looked to me like a regular religious Jew, Hasidish guy. Uh, the last thing I would ever think was that he was a uh, major software developer that was uh, also extraordinarily wealthy. And he left everything for the sake of learning Torah. He already made enough money. But the point is, is that uh, he, he was Jewish. Uh, you know, I have an organization that we, uh, we've, uh, uh, Baruch Hashem, have contributed millions and millions of dollars to help people not only learn Torah, but to help people eat. Uh, we, uh, we send millions of dollars, uh, you know, over the years, we've sent millions of dollars, uh, and, and I would say an average of about a million or more per year uh, to help uh, poor people in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, so the reality is, is that when a person says that religious Jews don't work, then how do you think we pay for houses and buildings, and, 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 and uh, all the things that we need. How do we eat? Uh, so it's stupid. It's simply stupid for people to think that religious people don't work because you just have to meet us and you'll know that we work. Uh, the, certainly there are some people that their profession is to be scholars, just like there are certain people that are not Jewish, that their profession is to be scholars. You know, it's still work being a scholar is still work you may not consider it work because you were never a scholar and you think it's easy to be a scholar because you think it's easy to read books but go try it for 5 10 20 30 hours straight and let's see how you succeed the reality is straining the mind and study is much more difficult than manual labor but needless to say even if you exclude all of the scholars in the uh, in the world of uh, Judaism, you'll have to exclude all of the scholars in the non-Jewish world, uh, and therefore you would have uh, many many professions out there that come from those very same scholars. Many inventions, many papers, uh, many ideas that come from those very same scholars. So that's number one. Number two is that the amount of scholars that we have. Uh, versus the amount of people that are actually working regular day-to-day -day jobs. Uh, certainly there are many people that work, many more people that work uh, regular jobs than there are Torah scholars. Uh, and uh, they are in all parts of uh, industry, import-export, apparel industry, technology, finance, legal, uh, you know, politics, everything. So... What, the reason why I'm even entertaining this question is not necessarily because I think that you per se will change. 
because if you were interested in changing, you would have already researched this before you made a fool of yourself by asking this question or making this comment publicly. The reason why I'm mentioning it is for those people that are simply too naive and uneducated, they, never, they don't know the answer. So I'm simply making it easy for you to know that this is such a ridiculous thing to say uh, that if you would just simply check, if you just type this on Google, what are the professions that religious Jews have? And you'll see literally an endless amount of professions and places that you will find religious Jews in. Uh, and if you're going to also count our brothers, which are the Jews that are not religious, then you're even in a deeper waters because some of the most extraordinary and important inventions uh, in modern day technology uh, came from the Jewish people. Uh, the semiconductors, the different uh, uh, screens that you're using right now, all of that stuff was made by Jews. And this is something that I discussed already in previous weeks. Point being is, if you're going to make public comments, remember that these public comments are, maybe you'll forget about them. Maybe the people that are on this thread are going to forget about them. But your creator will not forget them. And that comment goes into a permanent history book. It's when you die, the moment you die, and you're in the grave, life will be put back into you, and the Satan, the Malach the, the angel of death, will show you everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, including the stupid comments, including the curses, including the, uh, the, 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 the horrible things you said about the Jewish people. And guess what? You'll get punished for every single thing you've ever done. Why? Not only because it's bad, but rather because it took the time that you could have used to do good. So, if you don't have anything that is good to say, it's better not to say anything. But even if you want to say something bad, no problem. Just know that at the very least, have that statement qualified and investigated and verified before you say it because then you're simply making yourself look so dumb that other people that are in your nation will be embarrassed to be associated with you both in this world and the next so that means that you're simply getting yourself punished for no reason at least get something out of it I'm in a secret relationship with a Jewish girl, and I'm not Jewish. Her parents are Orthodox, and it's hard. Uh, well, you should know that as a non-Jew, you are forbidden from murdering. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, things that most people don't realize is that when a Jew is intimate with a non-Jew, whether it's a male with a female, female with a male, doesn't make a difference, the act between them uh, is forbidden according to the Torah, and it's considered as if you are murdering that person's soul. So in the Bet Din of Shemaim, you're considered a murderer, and uh, you're uh, uh, putting yourself in harm's way. Uh, King Solomon says that you'll end up losing all of your money, uh, and uh, in fact, you'll bring a lot of tragedy to your life. So my recommendation is to you is to end the relationship immediately, 
because you'll have a lot of tragedy as a result of it. It'll never work out. Even if you end up getting married, it'll never get work out because you'll see the, the, the track record of intermarriage where Jews marrying non-Jews is simply non-existent. They get married, they have kids, and then they get divorced and regret everything they ever done. And usually, nine out of ten times, it's because of the same religion they didn't care about. All of a sudden, one of the people cares about it. All of a sudden, the Christian guy cares about uh, Christianity, or the Jewish girl cares about Judaism. It simply never works out. and ends up being a life full of tragedy because the kids are confused. Who, what, when, how. It simply becomes a very, very big disaster and never works. Unless the people, you know, the people, both people are, uh, are Jewish. Now, uh, as far as the... Uh, uh, beforehand, you have to understand that every single time that you are together, a Jew is together with a non-Jew, you are making a big sin against your Creator, against God. And God is not going to be kind to those people that harm His kids. Uh, so if you really care about this person, you would leave them. Now, if you want to be Jewish, then certainly you can go and uh, to a uh, uh, rabbi that's going to sponsor you that's going to teach you to to become a jew eventually when you convert uh which takes time but certainly is a uh, a world worth uh endeavor to do it's uh, it's 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 changing your life forever once you convert obviously you want to get married with somebody if that person is still available certainly they would be happy to marry you if you're if you've become even better version of yourself once you've converted but uh to continue that relationship an extra day you're simply bringing a life of curses to both of you. And it never works anyway. So uh, the secret is out, uh, not just the one that uh, you're hiding from her parents and she's hiding from her parents, but also the ones that was hidden from you guys, thinking that this relationship is going to lead to anything good. Why does the Talmud override the Torah? The Talmud does not override the Torah. There, the Talmud is something that explains what it says in the Torah. As I mentioned earlier, you will not be able to understand the Torah, the, the written Torah, without the Talmud. Because the written Torah does not have a vowel system, does not have definitions for each one of its words, does not have a clarification for each one of the laws, uh, and, and does not have an explanation and a guide of how to uh, understand it. So it's important to know that the Talmud is a part of the, uh, uh, of the written Torah, meaning that the oral Torah and the written Torah are one uh, together. They go together. One doesn't exist without the other. They go together. And everything that you'll see in the Talmud when they're bringing up laws, they're going to tell you this is either a law that Moshe Rabbeinu got at Mount Sinai, or they're going to tell you this is a law that we get from this verse, that's uh that was extrapolated from the written torah it's not just laws out of thin air that they're creating for no reason uh so it's the the two go together there's no such thing as a uh simply uh uh the talmud uh taking over and uh disregarding the written torah that's just in people's imagination I spoke to our sister, Orthodox sister, and she said to split respectfully. Her sister was the same as before. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you can split respectfully. Personally, I would recommend just splitting period and simply never talk to each other because speaking, uh, uh, splitting respectfully generally does not work uh, because there's emotions involved, there's lust involved, and um, it's, it's going to be much more difficult. If you just simply uh, out of mind, uh, you know, is going to be uh, uh, most uh, likely to succeed. Uh, do I speak Hebrew? Yes, I actually have a lecture coming up in a in a few hours in Hebrew. I have a Hebrew channel, um, and uh, I do uh, I give a lecture similar to this uh, once a week. Uh, and Baruch Hashem, there's a bunch of people that uh, watch the Hebrew lectures only because they speak Hebrew. But yes, I was born in Israel, and uh, I came to the United States when I was 10 years old. Anyone that's interested in my personal life and stuff like that, you can watch the story of my personal life that's on the channel. Uh, it's called Hashem Took Back His Millions. It's a movie that was made about my personal life. It's very entertaining and inspiring. Rabbi, what's worse, breaking Shabbat or eating not kosher? Uh, okay, that's a good good question. Well, eating non kosher, if you eat chelev, it's isul karet, which means that a uh, if a person eats a certain part of the animal that is a uh, forbidden according to the Torah, uh, then the worst type of non kosher would be isul karet, which means that the punishment would be. Uh, a uh, dying early or having a person's children die during his lifetime uh, so either dying before the age of 50 uh, or uh, having their kids die uh, or or dying themselves uh, you know in, in a horrific way so these are some of the things that are isul karet but once a person dies the uh, the punishment after they die for eating non-kosher is uh is is for a period of time it's not forever on the other hand uh, the torah says in parashat kitisa uh that uh, a jew that does not observe shabbat meaning that he dies a person that uh violates shabbat does not observe shabbat he has no share of the world to come which means that not only is it karet similar to the uh, non-kosher where they get a uh, they would die early and uh, they would have kids die during their life and all types of horrible things would happen in their life but aside from that they go to Gehenna and they don't come out uh, the, the punishment for uh, desecrating Shabbat intentionally uh, is the worst punishment in the Torah where the punishment doesn't end uh, until the soul is officially destroyed altogether uh, and anyone that wants to know about Gehenna, there's also a movie that we recently uh, uh, published uh, uh, that's called Gehenna, the movie. And over there, it talks about all of the different details about Gehenna, what it's like, what's there, uh, based on different Torah sources. I believe we bring uh, over 170 uh, Torah sources that are quoted on the screen that you can double check uh, about everything that we're saying. And plus, there are other uh, scientific and psychological uh, sources that I mentioned there uh, as well and real life stories of people that uh, witnessed different things that uh, we mentioned in the movie that, that are mentioned in the Torah
most American Jews are not practicing Judaism whatsoever. Uh, yes, unfortunately, that's, the, that's a true statement, but that's not something that we're proud of. In uh, the United States, the, uh, you know, almost 90% of the Jewish people that live in the U.S. do not observe Shabbat, but uh, the uh, majority of Jews, even in Israel, do not observe Torah and Mitzvot. That does not necessarily mean that that's the right approach. The key is for us to know that the truth is the truth, whether, some, whether people follow it or not. And this is the reason why every Jew has a responsibility to help other Jews become more Jewish, meaning to follow the Torah. And it's actually one of the obligations of the Noahides is also to help other Jews uh, to become more Jewish because the more people follow the Torah, uh, the more uh, good is in the world where everyone gets blessed as a result of it. Uh, Judaism does not support uh, the uh, LGBTQ in any way, shape, or form. Anyone that told you that is simply lying to you. It's mentioned in the Torah multiple times that it's forbidden. Can one be redeemed from breaking Shabbat for a period of time? Absolutely. Once a person does tshuva, which is a uh, four-step process, then they can fix their desecration of Shabbat or, or any other sin. What is the steps? Step number one is stop sinning, meaning start keeping Shabbat. Start, uh, you know, stop violating it. That's number one. Number two is to make yourself a, uh, a fence, if you will, a protection that you don't fall to the same sins again. So, for example, if somebody is a former alcoholic, they uh, don't go to bars anymore. If they want to re their recovery to continue and they want to stay away from alcohol, they won't go to bars anymore. They won't hang out with certain people anymore because they know that those things entice them to sin. So a person that used to be a, a violator of Shabbat has to make the same type of fence where they don't go to certain places or hang out with certain people that cause them to violate Shabbat. Plus, they have to learn about Shabbat where the more you know about Shabbat and the other mitzvot, the more inclined you are to keep it. So that's number two. Step number three is to apologize, to, to feel sorrow for the fact that you violated Shabbat. And this third step is important because if a person uh, starts keeping Shabbat, he's doing everything good, but he doesn't feel sorry for uh, the, the bad that he's done in the past, it's an incomplete tshuva. So it's very important for a person to feel sorry, but that sorrow is not going to come right away. And it won't even come naturally. It's only going to come after you've dedicated enough time to follow the laws of Shabbat and to learn them. The more you dedicate yourself and commit to Shabbat, the more your heart is going to open and love Shabbat and therefore will also resent yourself or your actions from the past uh, and you'll feel true sorrow for it. Step number four is to, uh, if there's a test that you're ever given to possibly uh, violate Shabbat past that test. Uh, and step number five is to uh, make sure that you try to help other people. Other people keep Shabbat. There is actually a uh, fantastic uh, book for kids, but really it uh, has stories that are just as good for adults that uh, called Living Shabbos. Now this Living Shabbos has some you know, real stories in it that are fantastic. And one of the stories that it has is about the uh, previous generation had... Uh, uh, in, in America, had a lot of difficulty with observing Shabbat because the uh, anti-Semitism was standard and uh, the tolerance for Jewish people was very little. So 
from Jews, religious Jews, literally had to get a new job every week because, you know, the stores they would work at or different shops, different companies they worked at, you know, worked on Shabbat like they do today. And as soon as the Jew would tell him, listen, I can't come tomorrow because it's my Shabbat, they would simply fire him. They would tell him, listen, you don't come tomorrow, don't come at all. And in those days, one of the things that a person would get when they would fire him is they would give him a pink slip. That's why till this day to get fired is called pink, getting a pink slip. No one gets a pink slip anymore, but in those days you used to actually get a pink slip. Anyway, the, uh, one of the uh, stories is that um, this guy Shimon was a very righteous guy, you know, a, uh, uh, trying to do his best to feed his family, but every week he would get these uh, pink slips because he wouldn't come to work on Monday and they would fire him. Uh, on, on, on Saturday and they would fire him because he didn't work on Shabbat and he kept these pink slips one day Sukkot came up and his kids were decorating the sukkah and he tells the kids wait wait I have a bunch of decorations I want that wall the kids didn't know what decorations did their father have and all of a sudden they saw their father start posting all of the pink slips all the pink slips on the wall of the sukkah and he said, Abba, how, how is this decoration? He said, this is my favorite decoration because this decoration is a reminder for all of us that we're not going to forsake our Shabbat. We're not going to forsake our God for the sake of money or anything else in this world. This is our reminder. This is our reminder, these pink slips. And this lesson literally stood the test of time. So much so that a Kadosh Baruch Hu wanted this story that happened in a private family, unknown, unfamous, nobody knew who this family was, but a Kadosh Baruch Hu made sure that this story would be known to the entire world, and it's been published in countless different books, mentioned in many, many different lectures in different, uh, 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 in different languages, is mentioned in this kid's book as well, and it's one of those lessons that shows us when you truly appreciate Shabbat and Torah, you understand that it's worth everything. It's worth everything. But when a person doesn't, they'll think that, you know, maybe you should give up Shabbat like the, uh, the uh, unfortunately, the heretic from England uh, gave up Shabbat for the sake of honoring some king. And actually, there is another story here that uh, about a, um, a guy that got, um, a guy named Shai uh, Agnan. This Shai Agnan was a uh, famous talented writer who was going to receive a prize from the king of Sweden and this became a big deal because this uh, the Shai Agnan was a Jew and it was a big uh, honor to the state of Israel that, that he was going to get a reward uh, you know by a king of Sweden but he informed them that he can't come why can't he come because it's on Shabbat so he said, no, no, listen, but it's going to be on Shabbat, but it'll continue into the night. He's like, as soon as my Shabbat is over, I'll do my best to get there. The prime minister of Israel called him and warned him, don't embarrass us. This reward is not just for you. This reward is for the whole country. Shagnan didn't skip a beat and told him, this reward is not worth more than my Shabbat. I have to keep Shabbat. Then the prime minister changed the tone and started begging him, please, go, no, come on, no. 
I'm not going to violate my Shabbat. Long story short, Shai Agnin stayed true to the Torah, kept his Shabbat completely, had all the meals, learned the Torah, celebrated, enjoyed everything good. As soon as he Shabbat was completed, everything was done. He got into a uh, car that was waiting for him outside and he went towards the event. The event has already been going on for hours. He went into the event and, you know, everyone would have thought this is embarrassment. How could he show up late? Who is this guy? But as soon as he comes in, the whole place is looking at him. Why? He's the only guy with a keep on. And he's walking and the king sees him and brings him closer. As soon as he sees the king, he makes a blessing. Now the king never heard this before. He says, what is that? What did you do? He says, I just made a blessing because all of the honor is owned by our God. Everything, all of the honor, all of the pride, everything is owned by God. But we make a blessing when our God shares some of his majesty with a man of flesh and blood. A king in this world is flesh and blood and he shared his honor with you. And that's why I'm making a blessing. The king of Sweden was so excited about this that he literally made a whole big deal out of it and it became a big Kiddush Hashem. This too is another story that literally survived the test of time was such a big deal in the eyes of heaven that Hashem wanted to make sure that it's published in books. It's mentioned in lectures. Kids should know it. Now, reality is back then, there wasn't the media that we have today, the technology that we have today. This story could have happened and nobody would have heard about it other than the people over there. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to make sure that this and many other types of stories are publicized. Why? Because there's a promise that when you honor Shabbat, the Shabbat brings you honor. So if you honor the Shabbat, honor will come your way as well. Okay, let's get some more questions from Facebook people because so far for the last hour or so, we've taken questions from our friends at TikTok. Let's see. Um, here we go. If a non-Jew accidentally marked up a table cover and doesn't belong to them with a pen, what do they need to do? What if they don't know how much to give? They should call the company, ask them how much does it cost? Did you, you know, is it something I have to pay you for? Call the company, ask them if they owe them any money. If they do, pay them. If they say no, no, the end. Um, let's see, next question. Thank you for all the blessings. Appreciate it. Okay, here we go. Why was the tribe of Levi considered priest in Egypt? But later the Torah says that the firstborn was the original priest. Ah, very good question. Because originally, the priesthood was to the firstborns from the beginning of the Torah. From the beginning of the Torah, the priesthood was given to the uh, firstborn. Uh, this is why Malkitzedek. Malkitzedek was also the Shem. Shem, the son of uh, Noah. He was the uh, the high priest. Uh, and Gauven. Um, was originally the uh, the firstborn. He was supposed to be the high priest, but the uh, the firstborn lost their uh, their uh, uh, their rights uh, with the sin of the uh, golden calf and other different actions that took place, uh, and that was given to the uh, 
uh, to the Kohanim. Uh, and, uh, but originally, the, uh, it was supposed to be for the firstborns, but it was taken away from the firstborns and given to the Kohanim. Uh, some Chachamim say that when the Mashiach comes, the firstborns will get a, uh, not the old job back, they won't become the Kohen Gadol, but they'll have some type of priest type of job uh, or role uh, that they didn't have until this time. How do you do tshuva for gluttony and complaining about what we think we deserve in order to show authentic gratefulness? Well, first and foremost, uh, the uh, most critical part of doing tshuva is to stop the sin. So a person that, uh, whether he was a complainer or was a glutton or was a thief or was a uh, whatever he was or whatever she was, should stop it. That's the first step is to stop. The second step is to learn about the topic and to make sure to stay away from things that entice you to do the same thing. So if you know that there's a certain type of food, for example, that once you see it, you don't see anything else in the world anymore. If, 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 a, uh, if your spouse was dressed up in a costume of this food, you'd eat them. If you have such a food, the best thing to do is not to eat it anymore. In fact, one of the things that Rabbi Fahim taught me uh, is a uh, if somebody wants to work on their midot again this is not for everybody it all depends on where you are in life but one a person that wants to work on their midot if they see that there's something that they're eating and they enjoy it a lot you know you ate the food don't eat it for a while take a break from eating that thing again meaning if let's say for example your uh, wife makes a, a really really good steak and you really like the steak. It's so much that you're, uh, you found yourself thinking about it at 12 in the afternoon, even though you're not going to eat the steak until 6 p.m. If that's where you got to, tell your wife, honey, don't make steak. For how long? A few months. Why? Because once it gets to a point where it goes, you know, you're starting to desire it, it's already a, uh, you, it's too far. But again, this is not an obligation. This is simply a way to work on a, a person, work on themselves. There's no problem of enjoying yourself, but once a person starts dreaming about it, desiring it, it goes too far. Uh, so as far as gluttony is concerned, this is one of the ways the person can do. And as far as complaining, the tikkun for that is to be very, very grateful. To be very grateful, to, uh, to think about all the blessings you have, to show the blessings, to teach the blessings, to uh, express the blessings, to constantly look for the good in everything that Hashem gives you. Even if that good sometimes hurts, even if that good means you just lost money or you lost a job or you lost a tire or you lost an argument, whatever it is, be grateful for everything that Hashem gives you because in the end, ultimately, everything that you get is for your best. Even if we don't see it as the best, I mean, if we don't see it as good, it certainly is for your best. But a person needs to be grateful for everything that Hashem gives them, especially the things that are obviously good because, you know, he's, he's eating and drinking and living and so on, breathing and so on. Uh, why is Bamidbal considered uh, three separate books? Uh, because in Bamidbal, there's a section in there that is noon. Uh, there's two uh, there's two letters in the middle of the book uh, that is uh, two noons. And in essence, the uh, uh, originally the, the way it was, the Gemara explains it, is that this is to separate. This is actually in our weekly parasha. To separate the uh, the acts of of uh, of Am Yisrael, so it's not too many consecutive bad things in a row. 
uh, but also the sages say that this is exactly the middle, the middle of the of the Torah. But if these noons were not there, they would, in essence, they would be separate books. The uh, they would be separate. They would separate the book of Bamidbar. So originally, the Gemara says that it was seven books, but really it was a condensed into five, uh, uh, because the uh, of how the, uh, the there's no beginning and there's no end of the uh, of the written Torah. And this is the parasha that is discussing it. Uh, I read the other day that some are trying to build a third temple and bring the cows. Is this true? And it will not happen. Oh, Mashiach comes. Am I wrong? Nobody's trying to build a temple. Uh, people are trying to prepare for the temple uh, by having a uh, farm of red cows where they're trying to uh, uh, breed a perfect red cow. Uh, they're... Uh, uh, they have uh, made a menorah uh, that uh, follows the um, the exact details that they know of of what would fit into the Bet Hamikdash. Now, generally speaking, you're not allowed to make replicas, according to the Torah. You're not allowed to make replicas of any of the things of the Bet Hamikdash. Uh, it's forbidden to make replicas. Uh, but uh, they're not to them, and, and what they're saying is that they're not making a replica. They're in essence preparing for the Bet Mikdash, where this menorah and other things that they've made will be used in the Bet Mikdash. But as far as the Bet Mikdash itself, they're uh, they're not allowed to build. No one is allowed to build until the Mashiach uh, comes. And uh, the only debate that there is at that time was uh, is whether uh, once Mashiach comes, uh, the uh, the Bet Mikdash will come down. Uh, completely from heaven or we would have to contribute to it also but that's only after Mashiach comes no one can build the uh, the Bet HaMikdash uh, until that time comes uh, and uh, certainly there are people that have wanted to do it but uh, no one will succeed uh, and no one uh, even has the uh, ability to do it in fact anyone that uh, looks into uh, um, some of the I guess historical uh, records of recent years where uh, you know since modern day Israel uh, has, has been around there has been uh, different architects that uh, not architects different um, archaeologists different archaeologists that uh, have been uh, trying to find uh, different things from the times of the Bet Mikdash. Uh, but uh, you know, there were many times when they would actually find something. Uh, the uh, Hashem would send either politicians or Arabs or politicians that are Arabs or both uh, that uh, would get in their way and uh, and stop it. And many times the uh, the digging and the archaeology in Israel uh, was interrupted simply because Hashem does not want certain things to be uncovered. And then there are the times that they are uh, uncovered, but uh, most of the big stuff is it's not possible to do. It's not possible to do, uh, and people have tried. People have tried, and it's a uh, there's uh, anyone that wants to look into it, you can look into it as a quite a bit of uh, history of different people trying to dig and a lot of conspiracy, a lot of uh, agony trying to uh, uncover different things from the Bet Hamikdash, but unfortunately, uh, not now, not yet. Who started idolatry again after Noah's flood? Uh, we had Nimrod. Nimrod was the uh, uh, the uh, the first person that went a, against God. Uh, that's why his name was Nimrod, Marad Be'ashem. He uh, went against God. He was a warrior, and he uh, 
uh, he was a uh, uh, an idol worshiper. He turned himself into an idol. Also, in addition to an idol itself. Uh, if the garlic within the cooked dish stays overnight, does it have a spiritual impurity? Can you still eat it? Yes. Once it's part of a dish, it's no longer the same thing. Uh, what they're talking about in the Gemara that you're not allowed to uh, eat or should not eat is a uh, raw garlic that uh, was not cooked and uh, stayed overnight uh, you know, after it was peeled or cut. Uh, but if it's part of a food, uh, it's part of some, uh, you know, some food, there's no problem. Uh, Hashem chose the Jewish people while Allah wants Jews dead. I follow Hashem who chose us, not interested in this fictional Allah. Uh, any change to Hashem is the creation of an idol. I get why those who know a lot about. Um, Allah is simply another word for Hashem. Uh, so, uh, and, uh, and there's, no, uh, there's no place uh, for, for debate here. It's just simply the, uh, uh, you know, the, it's simply this, just like saying the word God is a, uh, referring to Hashem. Allah is the same thing. Uh, as far as a, uh, the, the teachings against the Jewish people that's in the Quran is not from Allah. It's from the, uh, the Muslim leaders uh, that, are, that wrote this, uh, this book and have different uh, teachings uh, from, the, uh, from Muhammad. Uh, so it's not, it's not coming from God. From last night's shiur, I learned the wayward child is taken from this world early to prevent further damage, but why stoning? Uh, well, that's the, uh, the death penalty that they deserve for, uh, for uh, doing what they did. The Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin uh, has a whole uh, discussion of uh, uh, the different types of death penalties uh, that uh, people get, but uh, the, the decree from the Torah itself is that he would get the worst death penalty uh, because uh, what he did was a was multiple crimes. Uh, the biggest one is the fact that he went against his uh, his parents. Uh, and the bigger the uh, the death penalty, the bigger the uh, the rectification, meaning it ends up being to his benefit that he gets that death penalty. Why in Az Yashir Moshe it says Hashem is a man of war? But in other places in Tanakh it says Hashem is not a man. Ah, very good question. So the uh, the Torah speaks in uh, in, a, in a language that is a uh, uh, when it's uh, speaking of let's say Hashem, it speaks in a figurative language or or, or where there is a um, Hashem, Hashem is a man of war or a Hashem took Am Yisrael out of Egypt with a strong arm or uh, Hashem loves, or Hashem hates. Hashem is not subject to any of these feelings or physicalities. This is called metamorphosis. Uh, it's in essence, the Torah is, is, is written in such a fashion for us to understand and to picture something that uh, from what's being said in order for us to understand the point. So when it says that Hashem took us out of Egypt with a strong arm, that means that really the Jewish people did not want to leave Egypt and Hashem had to make a what's called a super miracle, which is a miracle above a miracle, uh, in order to get the Jews out of Egypt, because 
we got to such a low level spiritually that we no longer saw ourselves as free people we thought that we were destined to be slaves so literally there was a super miracle and that super miracle is is a uh, um is exemplified by the uh the strong arm uh that's one uh, as far as a uh Hashem is a man of war that's because the the torah the torah is called the book of wars and the torah is his book he wrote the torah so what's the torah what war the war against everything that's not god everything that's against god all of the idols all of the heretical beliefs all of the things that are anti-good all of the things that are bad so the the torah itself is also mentioned in the in the torah there's a verse that says that it's the book of wars and god is the man of wars not that he's a man but in essence he's the it's his torah that's uh that's that's it's his possession so that's the uh other thing and there are other other types of examples that uh, in the torah uh where it says the uh the god of uh, uh vengeance uh is uh, is god the god of vengeance is here what does it mean what is the only he's only the god of vengeance no is that vengeance belongs to him you're not allowed to take vengeance people are not allowed to take vengeance and revenge any type something any type of revenge it's a uh it's only something that he can take care of you have to make sure to leave revenge in god's hands not in your hands and this is again one of the things that's exemplified in uh, psalm of uh, king david and there are many many different times where the torah is uh you know written in such a fashion for us to understand a a, a different point uh that's beyond the literal meaning Questions are jumping. Oh, that's okay. second. Uh, we are commanded to love and remember Hashem who brought us out of Egypt. That was done through the hand of Moshe. Okay, what's the question? No question. Okay. Guys, if you could just keep it with questions and not comments to make it simpler. Okay, in Shachrit prayer, uh, prayer of offering, there is a section where we speak of, in the English translation, Sodom salt. Uh, what is Sodom salt? Is it from the Dead Sea? Uh, <clears throat> uh, yes, the Sodom salt is from the Dead Sea. It's a uh, special salt that if somebody will put it in their eye, they most likely go blind. Yeah. Oh, come on. Again, the thing question. There we go. Should parents allow their teenage daughters to wear several earrings and a lot of rings, anklets, and jewelry in general? Absolutely not. This is immodest, inappropriate, and certainly, uh, uh, you know, um, a act of, uh, the, you know, promiscuity. Uh, if, you know, it's a uh, certainly not appropriate. No. As far as the many earrings and all the things that jingle and grab people's attention, no. Yeah, to be to, to have earring is not a problem, but to to uh, to do things that uh, uh, grab attention and, uh, and 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 bring attention is certainly not an appropriate uh, behavior for a bati sled. No, really for anybody. But uh, the point is, for a bati sled, it's certainly even more so. Can a woman do tani dibu? Uh, sure, you could do tani dibu the whole year if you want, and especially if your husband has a headache. But 
should you it depends depends on what's the price that you're gonna pay meaning if your tiny dibu is not going to hurt you educating your kids you uh, uh you know helping your husband uh then certainly tiny dibu is good but if your tiny dibu is going to uh be problematic for the chinuch of the kids problematic for your relationship with your husband then certainly you should not do it If a woman is Nida, is it correct that she cannot prepare the food for Shabbat if she's the only one available to do so? No, if she's Nida, she can prepare the food with no problem. Nida does not uh, affect her, uh, you know, her ability to prepare food. No, she should prepare the food and she should be treated with respect. Nida does not make her a... Uh, she's not sick. She's just forbidden to be intimate with her husband. That's it. What is the reason Hashem is allowing the massive wildfires that is spreading all across the East Coast? Is this a sign from Shemaim? Uh, sure, everything is a sign from Shemaim. Uh, question is, why wouldn't he do it? Why wouldn't he do it? Are they all righteous every day over there? Are they all honoring God? Are they all serving God? Are they all helping the poor? Are they all fighting against the lies? Uh, are they all fighting against the impurities? No. So why wouldn't he do it? That should be the question. Not why is he doing it. Why The fact that the world still exists is the miracle. Not that there's a tragedy here and there. We don't ask why Hashem does what he does. We ask uh, 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 what we need to do. Oh, and thank you very much for correcting me. It's not metamorphosis. It's anthropomorphosis. Something like that. It's a big word. You guys can figure it out on your own. Uh, let's see last question the culture many culture people are not buried after death how does beating of the grave apply to them uh, uh, the I have a movie called Chibuta Kevil Chibuta Kevil uh, is a uh, horrific scary movie that we made it's all full of Torah sources and uh, anyone that wants to get scared to death should watch that movie anyway Chibuta uh, Kevil it talks about the process. There are several steps uh, before the beating of the grave actually happens. There are several steps before the judgment of heaven actually takes place. Uh, but the uh, a big part of the process is for the person to go into a grave. So long as a person is not in, in a grave, uh, then their body cannot uh, be consumed. Meaning if they uh, burn the ashes and put it in some little uh, Pepsi jar, they put it in some bottle, uh, and, and then they put on somebody's counter, then uh, that's a very serious problem. If they, uh, you know, kept the body in some form or another, and they don't, let, they don't let the body disintegrate and go back to the ground and be consumed uh, by the ground, then this is a very, very serious problem because that means that that soul has to continue suffering in kafakela, meaning it doesn't even go to Gehenom yet. It doesn't even go into the horrible place that could potentially end it goes to a place that simply doesn't end it goes to kafakela and it's a very very serious problem uh but again remember everything that uh people get is because they uh did it to themselves nobody did it to them nobody's a victim um let me see god was made
could you get a blood transplant or is it against the law? Uh, no, it's perfectly allowed to get a, uh, a blood transplant. In fact, to save a life, uh, you can do a lot of things. You could, uh, the whole Torah goes on hold and uh, you're allowed to uh, donate a kidney, you're allowed to uh, donate different body parts so long as it doesn't kill the person that is donating. Uh, then, you know, you could donate it uh, to uh, somebody else. And certainly donating blood is uh, very, uh, uh, very important. In fact, I know the uh, Rav Zev, Rav Zev, uh, some of you have seen him in uh, some of the family events that we have. Rav Zev, he comes from a very, very important family. He's one of the descendants of uh, Rav Kaduri and also the Ben Ishrai. In fact, if you look at the pictures of Rav Zev and you look at the pictures of Rav uh, uh, the Ben Ishchai, literally, it's a replica. They look exactly alike. Anyway, Rav Zev, he comes from a very important family, and his father, Allah uh, 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 Shalom, he opened the first blood bank in Eretz Yisrael. The first blood bank. In those days, it was a, many people uh, uh, had tragedies happen in their families when women would give birth, and there wasn't uh, uh, an uh, organized blood bank, and many women would die unnecessarily when, when giving birth. So uh, he, Rav uh, Aaron, um, uh, his uh, Rav Zev's father, he uh, Rav Zev, Rav Zev, uh, uh, his father, he um, he opened uh, the first blood bank in Eretz Israel, which became the national blood bank. There are others also, obviously now, but he uh, he opened the first blood bank. It's a very necessary. Uh, part of, uh, of of society of health and, and so on and certainly the Torah uh, you know requires us to take care of our health. Are tattoos allowed uh, for uh, for a Jew to um, put on a tattoo uh, is forbidden because it's desecration of the body. Uh, but once a Jew has a tattoo on already, uh, unless it's a tattoo of something immodest or uh, something that uh, that other people would see, or it's a tattoo of idolatry. Uh, if let's say it's a tattoo of uh, I don't know some cartoon or a tattoo of a dog or a tattoo of I don't know, something some motorcycle or something like that, there's no obligation to remove the tattoo. Uh, the sin was to get the tattoo. Uh, that's completely forbidden. Uh, but once you have once a person has it, there's a uh, there's no obligation to remove it. Okay, guys, it's been a uh, couple of hours, almost three hours now. I think I should uh, take a little bit of a break before my next shiur. It's in Hebrew. Thank you again for learning with me. May Hashem bless each and every single one of you that watched, that learned, that's going to share this. Anyone that wants to donate can donate on the uh, website, on the Facebook page, on the YouTube page. You could donate. There's even a button over there you could donate. Uh, you could donate on the website and a lot of other places. And Bezat Hashem, help us continue helping you and everybody else get closer to Hashem. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen ve'amen.